Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Topic of Page podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. Joining me for this roundtable discussion about uh, C2E2 2015 is my sister Kay Kellum. How are you doing tonight? I am recovering from C2E2 and what most of my friends affectionately refer to as the con crud. I, I know exactly what you're feeling about. And uh, we're recording this episode, frankly, about a week later than I think we had intended. Definitely. We... <coughs> yeah, you're going to hear some coughing and stuff in the background. I'm probably not going to even try to edit a lot of this out. When we say we are recovering, we mean that fairly literally. Um, we're recording this on uh, Monday, May 4th. Yes. Which May is, the 4th be with you. Yes, the 4th of, of yes. Uh, Star Wars, can't go wrong with that, jeez. This is over, a, this is really a, a full week after the convention. It wasn't this past weekend, it was the weekend before. We'd gotten back late Sunday night. Um, I don't know about you, but I was feeling fine last Monday and, and a decent part of that Tuesday. I did great Monday. I went through Tuesday mostly like normal. And then Tuesday evening, I just suddenly lost all steam. And in the middle of the night, I started curling into a fetal position. And about 48 hours later, I started resurfacing into what might be referred to as humanity. Well, for me, that Tuesday co-worker and I had gone out to uh, Crego's Pizza, one of my favorite local pizza chains. They've got an awesome gluten-free pizza. That's a good last meal. And, well, it was one of those. They've got a 14-inch crust. Now, 14-inch crust for those... And we went to Chicago. Chicago is known for pizza. I love pizza, but I'm, I've got celiac disease. I can't have a regular pizza. And most gluten-free crusts are 10-inch crusts. So, Crego's, they've got the 14-inch. I had the 14-inch, yes, for lunch. I was a glutton. I, I ate too much. So that afternoon, that evening, I'm thinking, man, my stomach's not right. I, I must have eaten too much. This is like saying I have too much money. I have too many <laughs> comics. This TV show is too good. It just doesn't make sense. And then at about midnight, I realized, you know, my, my stomach is just not right. And it proceeded, the contents thereof, to hit escape velocity. The con crud. It hit me more or less out of the blue. I mean, the stomach was a little unhappy earlier, but nothing that did that. I was out of commission Wednesday. Thursday, I thought I was doing better. Friday proved me wrong. Mm. Slept through a decent part of Saturday, so I actually missed uh, going out for uh, for Free Comic Book Day this year. I became aware of Free Comic Book Day uh, Sunday morning when I was seeing emails telling me that the day before had been Saturday. Yeah. It was uh, uh, a, bit, a pretty pretty rough recovery for me, and now it is here again Monday the 4th, um, mm -hmm. getting over it. And I'm, I'm, I was starting to feel decent yesterday on Sunday, but I'm, I'm feeling better now. But that's why we didn't get this episode up earlier. Mm -hmm. And that is something that if you're going to conventions, and uh, I mean, again, we both have celiac disease. 
Well, it comes with a weakening of the immune system. That's exactly where I was going. Yep. And normally I try to be good during conventions of having some orange juice with breakfast every morning. And this year I wasn't doing it. And on top of that, I tend to get migraines from just the amount of noise. Sensory overload at these conventions. Easy yeah. To- well, in- and. In the exhibit halls. It's just so much. So I was having more caffeine and not the orange juice with that extra vitamin C to help the immune system. Well, and C2E2, this is our second year going. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, first off, fabulous convention. I love it. But anytime you get this many people together, if there's anything somebody's got, it's going to float around. And those of us with not so strong immune systems, uh, we're going to pay the price. Well, and that's why I refer to it as the con crud, is you just have no idea what you picked up where along the way. You just know you were around so many people during the convention experience, whether it's from flying from your hometown to another town, attending the convention itself, going out to eat at four different restaurants, etc., Somewhere in all of that interaction time, we encountered someone who, like us, was not 100% healthy. Well, one of the things I will say is the people we stayed with, um, the the Chans, did an amazing job finding great places to eat, making sure they were gluten-free, gluten-friendly places, um, and they made going to this convention just a real breeze. Well, and from the very first restaurant, level 257. Which- yeah, we flew out on the on Thursday, got there, met, uh, they picked us up at the airport, and then we met some other people there um, at level 257. That, this was a hell of a find. I don't know how they found out about it. Uh, it's it's in their neck of the woods, so that helped. It's a Pac-Man themed, I would say, upper scale restaurant. Yes, it's Dave and Buster's for Pac-Man both theming, but also for the Pac-Man, I want to say generation. But Dave & Buster's, I think, is more pub food. True, true. Blue collar, if you will. And I don't mean anything wrong with it. I love Dave & Buster's. No, exactly. But I had lobster mac and cheese. There's a little bit more of an upscale, fancier food. And they've got bowling alleys. And it's it's a... It's more of a come and spend some time and get an actual, it's going to fill you up meal. As opposed to at Dave & Buster's, I've often felt like what I had was more of a snack than an actual fill-me-up meal. Well, and also Dave & Buster's is more of an arcade with a, a restaurant built in. Yes. This is more of a restaurant with a a vintage arcade for the nostalgia. I mean, it's, it's literally yes. Pac-Man. And those variations, uh, asteroids. Um, what was the uh, spy? Wasn't spy smasher? And it, games from literally like the early eighties. Well, and it's a uh, you come in downstairs, but then you go upstairs to get to the restaurant. And downstairs, where you're waiting for the elevator, they have one of your traditional stand-up arcade machines. And we nearly lost one member of our party before we even made it to the elevator. Uh, Another techie in our group saw that, and it's got a clear plexiglass side so you can see into the cabinet. Yeah, and, you know, talk about just every child's fantasy, as if we didn't all want to see how the machine worked when we were children. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, because even for a place that had uh, at least a dozen bowling lanes between the two sides... 
And typically that makes for a loud, chaotic kind of environment. There's a lot of arcade games. You think it'd be noisy. It didn't feel that way. It was less of a migraine maker for me than the convention center. And I'm very prone to ambient noise being one of my triggers. So I was concerned when I saw we would be eating near bowling lanes. Will this be a trigger or not? Well, and it's one of those things that if we hadn't, frankly, been so tired kind of going into the convention and stuff, because we've had a, a fairly rough month just personally and stuff outside of, of work and the podcast and whatnot, uh, some stuff going on with, with uh, the family and stuff. So be, one, being able to go to a convention and having somebody had already taken care of where are we going to eat? How are we going to get to places? I love that. That helped a lot. But, you know, if we hadn't been so tired, I think we easily could have spent the uh, the hour or so afterwards because it was opening. It was the official opening night. The place had been open a couple of months. Yeah. So we got uh, the, the cards for a free hour of gameplay. Yeah. And one of the uh, Pac-Man games in, I guess, the bar area was I was trying to describe the screen size to someone later. Jumbotron. Yeah, I the best I could come up with is we were walking around the convention center and we saw four ATMs side by side. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, those four ATMs are the size the screen was for the Pac-Man video game. Well, it was uh, Battle Royale, I guess, was the game you could play on it. You have four Pac-Man going. So you've got f four little bar stool kind of a things that can control their own Pac-Man and then this wall-sized screen for it. Just so people understand the the name of the restaurant, Level 257. It's named after Pac-Man. Well, gee, how so? Well, this is back in old, old school video gaming, uh, which is, uh, Pac-Man, I guess, is the generation after Pong, because I don't know that there was much between Pong <laughs> and Pac-Man. Maybe there was. I don't know. But it was um, back in the early days. Pac-Man, everyone, if you don't know what Pac-Man is, look it up on YouTube, Wikipedia, and ask your grandparents, I guess. <laughs> but it, you know, it's a maze game. You go around, you eat the pellets, uh, get the power up, eat the ghosts, whatever. But it only had 256 levels. Technically 255 and a half, because apparently when you started playing the 256th level, like half the screen goes blank or the whole thing goes blank and you gotta play it just for memory or some such. So it was like Im literally impossible to beat. But if you think about it, a single byte in a computer, one storage unit, has 256 possible values. There could not have been another level without expanding the number of storage for how many levels can we have. And you get to like, you know, uh, 65,000 or something crazy. Wouldn't that just be nuts? And this, the theme of this restaurant is taking it to the next level. Hmm. Now, I don't know exactly the corporate relationship between Namco, Bandai, and a few of the other places, but they had a little store downstairs. Tons of Pac-Man-themed merchandise. They had a couple of the uh, SH Figure Arts action figures mm -hmm. that I've kind of gotten addicted to, including the, the Batman one, which uh, actually I think I've already got upstairs. But it's the kind of thing, if you're in the Chicago area, look up level 257. Oh, and the food was excellent. Great food, excellent service. Mm-hmm. Very attentive of waiters uh, and stuff. Very savvy on the, the celiac stuff, which is good for us, but just good overall. It's the thing that if you've got some friends that are into geek culture and, hey, you're listening to a podcast mm -hmm. about a comic book convention, so I think you're into geek culture. I think yeah. it's a safe bet. But if you're into gaming at all, I am not a hardcore gamer. But everybody remembers Pac-Man, at least of our generation. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. There, they had so many of these 
stand-up arcade games that you just haven't seen in 15 or 20 years in arcade. So even when we didn't take the time to play some of them, going around and saying, oh my God, I have not seen that controller in so long. Well, they had a... Or, uh, uh, it was like a Kung Fu game or whatever, a Spy Smasher. I forget the name of it, but it's like, you know, I haven't seen that one since like the mid 80s. Yeah, it was just such a nostalgia flashback experience that for that alone, it was great walking around and doing all these double takes. Well, the funniest thing to me was since we were kind of tired, we you know hung on to our cards, let our, our friends have them because they live in the area, they can yes. always go back. And it, it was one of those, once you start, it's good for an hour. And we hadn't started them. But the the two people who had joined us, uh, Fifi and Don, stayed. And they started playing a couple of video games before we left. And the ones they played were the Star Wars Battle Pods. So you're sitting here with with an arcade that's got Pac-Man, Asteroids, uh, uh, Missile Command, next to a state-of-the-art, what looks to be incredibly immersive, get in the little battle pod and... and Go, you know, fight the rebellion or fight for the rebellion, I guess. It just newest to the new, to the oldest to the old almost. Yeah. It was, uh, it was wild. It was, again, great food, great conversation, great way to start the trip. Yes. And I, I frankly expect nothing less from, from our friends, the Chans. Because yes. Erica is definitely a foodie. Yes. But is also really, you know, uh, gracious about making sure that, that we get fed well and are not going to get poisoned at these conventions, which I really appreciate because as sick as I was from, was from whatever virus might have been going around the convention, geez, if I had been hit with gluten on top of that, well, I'd that, still be down for the count. That's the thing. When I got sick, I never once thought it was from something I ate because I knew, despite being away from restaurants I know, et cetera, we and they had researched the food so well. Yeah. I could set that concern aside. And that was a very nice feeling. I'm generally not an adventurous eater. But again, Erica had prepped, you know, hey, how about these things and mm -hmm. stuff ahead of time. Had a couple of questions. And again, mm -hmm. the places she finds invariably have really good food. Yes. Well, and the mall, the level 257 is uh, part of its doesn't have a door into the mall, but it's in the building and attached to Hot Topic. And Hot Topic uh, had yeah. just put out their Orphan Black line. So while we were waiting for Don and Fifi to make it over, we went over and looked at the Orphan Black line of products. And for the most part, I really like what they're doing. Uh, there were one or two where Erica and I were looking at and we're like, is that exactly how it is on the show? Or have they... Uh, embroidered some weaponry where um, Allison, I believe it is, is a bit more uh, upscale and subtle about her uh, uh, weapons. Hot and Topic is interesting because, I mean, they've been around for I don't know how long, ages. And it was one of those stories that I frankly never paid that much attention to. But it kind of got back on my radar, I guess, last year at Comic-Con. Mm. We were actually taking Erica and, and Linda to um to get their badges or whatever down in Fashion mm, Valley. Mm -hmm. And we kept seeing all these people that had these round Captain America backpacks. That's right. And I'm like, those are so cool. And I forget if I asked, I guess they may have asked while they were getting their badges or whatever, where people had got them. We wound up finding out they were like, you know, 35, 40 bucks at Dead Hot Topic. Needless to say, last year at Comic-Con, my first purchase 
was on the web back at the hotel for Hot Topic to get me one of those backpacks. Well, and because I was very much looking forward to the Orphan Black actors making an appearance at C2E2, my first purchase for C2E2 was at Hot Topic at the mall, uh, picking up some bracelets and the ring, Mm -hmm. which they had on sale. And on the one hand, I'm a little disappointed. The ring is a one-size-fits-all for the thumb, I think. So for me, it doesn't fit. Uh, But I like that they did the patent number. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, as rings go, that was a cute idea. Yeah. And it fits really nicely, ironically, on uh, the badge holders that you get conventions. Uh, yeah. And that's somewhere that you can put it and other Orphan Black fans can see it and stuff. So we're more like a necklace. If you're looking for show-based t-shirts or other stuff, jewelry, whatever, uh, they even had a lot of the... uh like the Doctor Who Sonic Screwdriver, that kind of stuff. Hot Topic is well worth checking out. It um, is. I think it's something that, for the geek culture, I think they've really identified that audience and are doing a pretty good job serving them. Yeah. There are a couple of t-shirts. It's like, well, that one looks kind of cool. I've considered that. It's one of those that, you know, we're traveling. I don't want to have to fit it in a suitcase. But at some point, I could definitely see hitting the, the local one here and possibly spending some money. Every year... I debate on any trip, but especially the two years we've gone to C2E2 now. Should I really be trying to do this on a carry-on? Certainly not as small a one as we've done, because it's hard to get stuff in there coming back. Yes. Now, that was uh, Thursday night, so we did the Hot Topic. We also went by the Lego store. It's actually a huge mall, so we did a fair amount of walking that night. Um, Great time at level 257. Uh, If we go back next year, and odds are we probably will, Although, frankly, having spent the last couple of days getting over this year, I'm not 100%. It's a good, good, good convention to go to, so it's well worth considering. Uh, going back to 257 would be on it, my to-do list. It's, yeah, it's excellent food in an excellent environment. I highly recommend it. And there again, it's something that's there year-round. It's not dependent on C2E2, so anytime you go to Chicago, check it out. Well, and if you've got a bunch of geek friends, it's a comfortable place to... <laughs> Hang out for an evening, have a bite to eat, play some games, and just chill and talk out. You know, talk with people. And it was a good environment for talking, despite bowling going on all around us, etc. Yeah, the the sound levels was what impressed me. They did a good yeah. job putting that together. So Friday morning, Eggs Harbor, Eggs Harbor, uh, Egg Harbor, singular. Egg Harbor. We have multiple eggs, but only yeah. one in the name. Uh, we found this place, or they found this place, took us to it last year, and uh, really, really good food. Yes. And our habit, um, frankly, I, I blame Guy for this. Uh, Guy was, hopefully still is, the omelet chef at the um, the uh, Hilton at the Gas Lamp. Now, be honest. I remember Guy's name because he was the omelet guy. Yes, I remember Guy's name because it's his name. <laughs> uh, a great, great guy. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> really good omelet chef, friendly guy. But basically, uh, we'd been staying at the Hilton uh, gas lamp for many years, uh, starting back 2000, 2001? 2000. 2000. And, you know, this is, was that before we'd gotten diagnosed? Yes. The first year, I guess it was, with the celiac. Finding time to go have lunch at a convention is tough. With celiac, finding food you can eat at a convention Damn near impossible. But have a really good, solid breakfast. Start the day 
not just full, but full of good, healthy, nutritious food. You start with a high-protein breakfast, yeah. like an omelet, you know, uh, bacon, eggs, that you know, that kind of stuff, and you start out with a full tank of energy. Yeah. And I, I would not have made it through uh, either Comic-Con or, in this case, C2E2 if we hadn't started every day well-fed. Yeah. Um, so every morning uh, while we were in, in Chicago, both this year and last. I was going to say, five out of six morning survey, there is a very good table at Egg Harbor. We did go one other place last year. It was uh, Yoke. Or were- oh, uh, Life Kitchen. Life Kitchen, that's where it was. Um, and I guess we mentioned this last year. There was a waitress there that had her inner geek but had no outlet for it. Ah, <laughs> yes. Which is unfortunate. Very nice lady. Now, this year for one meal, and I, which we'll get to later, I'm sure, uh, but I'll mention it now because it cracked me up. When John went to pay for our food, the very nice man at the cash register tells John, your total is, and I'll be taking your shirt, too. Yeah, that was uh, the last day. Um, we were we'd actually had breakfast. To, uh, we were staying at Linda's. We pick up Erica. We swing by Hannah's Bretzel. Hannah's Bretzels. We did the same thing last year, and grabbed sandwiches to go. So we'd have something after the convention on Sunday, and we did the same thing this year, doing that. And he's like, "Okay, your total's this, and I want that shirt." Yes, and the way he said it was like, and your shirt is my tip. Thank and I'm you. like just about ready to take it off, except I like the shirt. <laughs> I know. The nice thing about that shirt is I have a spare. Oh, well. Now, when I go to a convention, and we're getting off topic here, but what the hell? It's on topic for this, I guess. Anyways, I, I love to spread the love. At a show like C2E2, it's a three-day show. There you go. Okay. Using the weekly comic spotlight formula. Yes. One for DC, one for Marvel, and one for somebody else. Now, I have to say, even as a non-comic book reader, I did notice that, and I liked all of your shirts this year, I must say. It was easy to pick. This the, the DC one I went with is a kind of a light blue t-shirt with the different variations of Superman's S logo over the years. I've always been fond of that shirt, yeah. It's a cool shirt. It's a nice shirt. Um, I've got a few other DC ones, but that one's that one's hard to go wrong with. Um, one of the things I may want to do between now and San Diego Comic-Con, be it either at Hot Topic or, or Target actually has some decent selections, is maybe find a good Flash shirt. Because mm, mm-hmm. I love the Flash. I love the TV show. I like the uh, Star Labs shirt that we were seeing. Um, we saw it at C2E2. Mm-hmm. And I cannot think of the name of the company. Graffiti that, Designs is another place we should. Yeah. Half the stuff in the back of previews, there's usually a bunch of stuff from Graffiti. Yeah. But that Star Labs shirt, and I think Graffiti is the one who has it. That is a good looking shirt they've put out. And, you know, it looks just like the one Barry Allen's wearing on the show, which doesn't hurt. Yeah. Um. But. So. Yeah. A little, little more subtle than a blatant, you know, here's yeah. Superman's logo. Thing. Exactly. And I like the ones that. I refer to them as inside jokes because they're the ones that for the people who know the property, they're not just the blatant I am yeah. the logo. Definitely though, I think we need to I need to do a little swapping around for a good flash mm-hmm. Star Labs kind of a, a shirt because it's a wonderful show and I, I Flash is one of the earlier characters that I started reading the monthly comics on. Uh starting with the day it rained the flash, just month after month I gotta read this. So that was my DC shirt. No real comments. For uh for the next day, Saturday, uh for, for Marvel, 
Captain America shield shirt. And I saw quite a few of those shirts around, in addition to quite a few people dressed as Captain and uh, quite a few of the shields, etc. And the thing with that is there's so many variations on that sort of a shirt. A lot of them are cool. Mm -hmm. But again, Captain America, I've probably got more Captain America comics than almost any other character, any other title, I guess. Probably more Batman ones because he's been in practically every book. Anyways, uh, no real comments on that shirt. Sunday, I'm wearing this other shirt. The guy at Hannah's uh, Bretzel's comments on it were walking into the hall that day. I thought security wasn't going to let you in. pulls me over, you know, with basically, I like that shirt, did you know? Yeah, but the way he pulled you over was like you were being arrested or something I'm at like, first. look in my bag. There's nothing there. <laughs> it was funny. Yeah. Um, and then at least two other people commented, I like that shirt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people are wondering, well, what is the shirt? Okay, I'll tell you. Uh, it's one, actually, that you and, and Erica helped me get, and Linda, too, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, two, three years ago at San Diego Comic-Con, uh, Bandai and uh, Nickelodeon and a couple other booths had a go to these booths, get the stamp, show up at this place Saturday at this time, you get a shirt. And it was the 20th anniversary Power Ranger shirt. Mm-hmm. So it had all 19 or whatever of the Red Rangers and the White Ranger in the middle, 20, 20th anniversary. And it's a cool shirt. It is. And yeah. it really shows the history of that franchise. Well, and it's a black shirt where the Rangers really just kind of pop off of yep. it. Yeah, good color. And one of the things I've noticed, and I attribute this to the property of Power Rangers going back from Disney to Saban. Disney didn't know what to do with the property. Mm. This is before they had a grasp on what to do with with superhero type stuff. Mm-hmm. Which is ironic since they sent Spot, Star Wars, Marvel. I mean, they, yeah. they've got most of the major boy properties, I think. They didn't know what to do with Power Rangers. Saban bought it back. And since then, not only have they, I think, gotten better with the shows, uh, Samurai was so-so, Super Samurai, okay, Megaforce, Super Megaforce, which I thought Gokaiju, the basis for that, were great. These were all right. But now, particularly with Dino Thunder, it's like, wow, this is some really fun stuff. They've gotten back into, oh, this is how the property really works. But I've been seeing more and more Power Ranger cosplay at these conventions. We saw it at Toronto. I saw it definitely here at C2E2. You know, at C2E2, Erica, Linda, and I were sitting in the food court at one point talking. And a guy sat down at the table with us. And, I mean, I was aware of it. He'd taken off the helmet to his costume. I'm glancing over and I'm like, I kind of think I know what he's cosplaying, but not fully aware of it. And suddenly this little kid, maybe three years old, runs over. Oh, giddy as can be and erica and linda chime in with he's been playing with power ranger action figures so the guy who's cosplaying a power ranger suddenly like okay that's why this kid is too excited to talk Mm -hmm. but he's just pointing at me like i am the coolest thing on earth right so then the father of the kid comes over and is very apologetic. I'm so sorry he's interrupted your lunch and, you know, we don't mean to intrude and all this stuff. And the guy's like, no, no, it's fine. I'll put on my helmet if you'd like to take a photo. And, oh, now the kid's beyond excited. Yeah. You know, okay. So the guy puts on his helmet and the kid turns around for the photo and Erica and Linda call out to the kid, it's morphin' time. Oh, now the kid's face, he's grinning from ear to ear he's bouncing on his toes you've just had christmas for this kid Mm -hmm. from what it looks like 
And after the father takes the picture, the kid turns around and, you know, he's three years old. He doesn't know certain things yet. And his father very politely explains to him what he's doing now is inappropriate as he starts pointing at the Power Rangers belt and leggings and everything, just like he had been doing with the action figures he'd been playing with. Yeah. And, you know, I told Linda later, um, I didn't say cosplay is not consent. But, but with all the signs around. <laughs> they were everywhere you turned. And I'm thinking, you know, this, this three-year-old and the cosplayer was so patient with this child as he's looking at the father who's patiently pulling the kid away saying, no, this isn't how we treat a person. People are not action figures. Funny. You know, but this kid was just so excited and he couldn't tell the difference. And I saw so many kids who were just so thrilled beyond words to interact with these cosplayers mm -hmm. and meet these cosplayers. And in several cases, clearly, especially with the three and unders, couldn't tell the difference between the cosplayers and the ones they see on TV, etc. As far as they knew, it was the real thing, yeah. Yeah. And it, it was like these magical moments unfolding in front of you. It's like Disneyland. Yeah. It is the characters. Yeah. And it's funny because a lot of, I mean, we met a, a, a young couple in Toronto, I guess, that were uh, dressed up as Power Rangers and stuff. They were really nice people. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the people who do the cosplay tend to be that way. Mm-hmm. Really friendly, particularly those that are doing more, I don't say family-friendly properties, but you know what I mean. The kid-centric properties. The kid and who realize that the kids are going to gravitate to them. Just the way they do to Belle and the other princesses at Disneyland. We saw a guy dressed up as uh, the summer sol uh, soldier yes. versus the winter soldier. The guy could be a really cool guy for all I know. Didn't never talk to him. But I wouldn't look at him and say, you know, he's going to be great with the kids. But you look at somebody who's dressed up as be it a Power Ranger or uh, some other, again, more kid centric type stuff. Generally, they tend to be really cool people mm -hmm. and most i mean most cosplayers tend to be that way too but some of them are more in the creative aspect versus yeah. say the interpersonal sometimes because i mean frankly it, i've got to imagine some of these people doing the cosplay stuff particularly by the end of the day it's like you know i've had my picture taken a bazillion times i'm done i just want to go you know kind of yeah none of them seem to be really kind of snarky about it but i can see where there comes a point where I would understand. Yes. Yes. Um, but again, uh, C2E2, the cosplay stuff, really impressive. At one point, I saw a group of, it looked like at least half a dozen uh, uh, Red Rangers, mm. including one or two that had never showed up in the, the U.S. version. Hmm. They were uh, Sentai ones. The one, the, the White Ranger, uh, the, the original White Ranger, has a different kind of a motif to his costume than mm. the rest. And that's because he was taken from a different season of the Japanese show. And this was the Red Ranger from that season. The winner for their cosplay contest was someone I never saw walking the floor. And I really wish I had. I saw a costume that was either this person or someone very much like this person. I'll put it that way. Last year. And it was a Groot costume. Mm. And the Groot I saw last year at C2E2 just blew my mind away and the picture i saw for the groot who won this year 
I just have that nagging feeling. My God, I think it was the same guy because it, it looked like the one from the movie. I tell you, there are a couple of costumes I've seen over the years that the the detail is down or the simplicity of it is great. It's, you know, it's it's not a skill set I have or have any desire to, to acquire, but just seeing, and I was, I was talking to, um, it was actually Adam, uh, uh, Withers of Comfort and Adam. I'll talk a little bit more about them later. They've got a, a book coming up on, um, creating comics and stuff, uh, a complete guide to self-publishing comics. But I had a good conversation with him. I guess it was Saturday or Sunday. And he said one of the things that had motivated, uh, he and his wife Comfort to how they go about their business, how they do their stuff, both with, the uniques and with their book is uh, an article they'd read at one point or he'd read about having a hundred true fans, mm, thousand, mm-hmm. I mean, thousand true fans. And the basic gist as he described it is there are a lot of people here at, the, at that convention that were just fans of stuff. But if you had a true fan that if you came out with something, say 50 bucks or less, they'd buy it because you did it. Mm. That's a true fan. Mm-hmm. You really only need about a thousand of those. And as he was talking about, I was sitting there working the numbers. It's like, okay, 50 bucks, 1,000, 50,000. You know, come out with an item or two a year around. Yeah, it does work. Yeah. You know, you could, I'm not going to say make a killing. But his point was then also that, and it's been a week or so, so I may be misquoting, but you look around at these people. There are people who read Spider-Man. There are people who read Captain America or whatever. And you look around, there are people who are dressed up as Spider-Man. As Captain America, as mm-hmm. your character, as this other person's character, as that other person's character. Mm-hmm. Those are true fans. Yeah, yeah. Not to say the rest aren't. Yeah. But there's a certain amount of these people have developed such an attachment to some of these characters. Mm-hmm. Well, again, the shirts I wear. Yeah. I yes. like Superman. I like Captain America. I like the Power Rangers. Yeah. You know? I, I'm voting, yeah. if you will. Well, and I mean, my my companion thought to that, if you will, is with Facebook. For every person that has liked comic book page, if they liked each post for the weekly comic spotlight, then that would increase the number of people who actually saw the posts Absolutely. for the weekly comic spotlight. And it means that every person who likes comic book page might actually see the posts for the weekly comic spotlight. That's the kind of thing where just a little bit of effort can really help support yeah. somebody, in this case us or, or another property, yeah. whatever. Yeah. You know? And, and in that case, it's a it's an expenditure of effort as opposed to funds. Exactly. It's not that it's got to be a grand sweeping gesture. If I'm going to go to this convention dressed up this, yeah. it's just a simple show of support. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And having people that will do that for a property. And yeah. uh, talking with, with Adam, I, I talked with him for a bit. Um, I had mentioned his, had not mentioned, I had picked his book, uh, he and his wife's book, um, when it was in the previews last month. Because it's like, you know, these two, I've known about them for years. I uh, came across them while I was hanging out on the, the Comic Geek Speak forums and such. They were doing the uniques. They've since done Rainbow in the Dark, which had gotten them a lot more notoriety and stuff. I think they're coming out with a, a kind of a, a remastered version of the uniques to then continue it on. But these people have done self-publishing. And they've done it not through a big, you know, 
publishing company would have. They've done it themselves. Mm-hmm. And they've done quality work. Great art, great story. And it's like, you know, if they're coming out with a, a book on how to self-publish comics, yeah, I want to hear what they have to say. Yeah, They know what they're talking about. And one of the things that really impressed me uh, talking with Adam is they've got input from, I think he said, maybe 70 or so different people. I forget how many, a lot, you know, uh, people like Mark Wade and stuff like that to get as many viewpoints, to get as complete of a picture as possible and not just here was our one little story or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more I talked with him, the more impressed I was. These are great people. And it's part of what's fun about going to a show like C2E2 that has just a huge artist alley. It does. I would say the artist alley is comparable in size to San Diego, even though the entire exhibit hall floor is what more like a quarter the size of San Diego? Quarter, maybe twenty five percent. At some point, I, I mean, need to do the math and how many booths, how many you know yeah. square footage or whatever. With C two E two, not only do they seem to have as many tables for artists, but it's physically a bigger and better setup. Artist alley. Wider aisles, easier access. Um, whereas in San Diego, they've got dead ends and a few things that it's just, I get why they do it, but it, yeah. it, it annoys me. Um, there are certain artists, if you're in that little half alley at the edge, mm-hmm. I'll look down the alley. I won't walk down. It's like, well, I've just got to turn around and come back. That's embarrassing. Yeah. You know, whereas I can zigzag through anyways. Um, being able to sit and talk with some of these people at length. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did that, uh, with, with, with Adam. Um, didn't really talk to Comfort. She was talking with the other people at the booth and stuff. No disrespect for her again. But we uh, stopped briefly with Steve Bryant and mm-hmm. saw a truly wonderful sight, not once but twice. I've been friends with Steve um, for years. Uh, seen him at San Diego and stuff. And it's one of those things. When I'm hanging at a booth with somebody who's behind the booth that I know, and somebody else comes by, I expect the person behind the booth, and I take no offense at this, whatever, I'd be offended if they didn't do this. I expect them to stop, turn to the person, hey, can I tell you about, mm-hmm. give the sales pitch. Now, see, my variation on that is I expect the person I'm talking to to start ignoring me in favor of the new arrival. Same idea. Yes. But, and and Steve's got his sales pitch for Athena Voltaire down. And, you know, he, Steve has a wonderful personality, I gotta say, just for how he interacts with people mm-hmm. in his booth. I, I love watching him work it. I was amazed how magically refined I think his sales pitch got this year. Oh, it was. I was there talking. Somebody came up, hands him a $20 bill, points to the book and says, I would like this. I've been waiting for a while to get this. You have this year. I would like this. Yes. And then he he's like, do you need me to tell you? No, no, I know what it is. Mm. This is the kind of thing where Steve has been working on getting Athena out there, getting you know, the sales pitch, marketing it for years. It's the decade-long overnight success story. Absolutely. And I don't know how many he sold, but uh, while we were there, a few minutes later, same thing happened again. And, and I love seeing it. Oh, same here, because to me, it so validates the the hard work Steve's put in over the years mm-hmm. of going to the conventions, doing the sales pitch, getting the word out there, doing the podcast, mm-hmm. you know, the, the hardcover, all that kind of stuff. And it's really nice to to see that pay off yeah. over time. 
Yeah. I was talking with uh, Phil Moy at one point at his booth, and somebody was talking with their friend, their significant other, their whoever, and they were kind of reaching for their wallet, but seeing that we were busy talking, so maybe not reaching for their wallet, at which point I said, let me step away from in front of the shiny object and allow you to ask for it and pay for it, because it's really rude of me to block shiny objects. Mm-hmm. And Phil just kind of looks at me like, what's going on? <laughs> I'm like, I always feel bad, though, when I'm interacting with someone at their booth, whoever they might be, and I'm possibly preventing someone from seeing whatever the shiny object might be that I know is fascinating and I've already had the chance to enjoy. And I hate the thought that somebody might put that wallet back or not ask that question because they think I was there first. I was over at Tom Zoller's table for a while talking with him. I've been a fan of Tom Zoller's work since uh, whenever I first encountered it, possibly as a free comic book day thing, Loving Capes. He's got a new book coming out, Long Distance, uh, relationship stuff. Uh, Loving Capes is essentially a superhero romantic comedy. And he's got what looks like a deceptively simple looking art style. Yet his storytelling is is pitch perfect. His accessibility, his, his both in terms of his story and art and, and writing, amazing. So I'm talking with him at length. I love talking with him at conventions. Always make a point of doing it because he's got a good insight into the characters as to what works, what doesn't, or some of the companies. Maybe you're doing some weird things. Maybe you're not. But I'm sitting there talking, and every once in a while, it's okay. Could you just, just move over a little to the left? Because he sees somebody coming in to look at the stuff. And I thought, yes, by all means, adjust me as needed to make mm-hmm. sure I'm out of the way of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's, he's very, you know, kind of, you know, low-key about it. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, you know, let's make sure that the commerce can happen too. Exactly. And absolutely, because he's someone whose work I will pimp to till I'm blue in the face mm-hmm. because I love it so much. He can do in a 20-page comic something that, would take most comic titles six months to even come close to, mm. to getting that amount of story in. Mm-hmm. And it's something that if I could actually get you to read, I think you'd really enjoy. It's Lois and Clark as a romantic comedy, not as a superhero TV show. Ah, uh, yes. And there are a lot of things, oh, that's the Batman character, that's the Wonder Woman character, but you get the archetypes, boom, let's move forward. Yes, yes. And... He's always introducing the people within the, the, the names within each issue. There's always a story beat or two per page. He's one that if he wrote a book on comic book storytelling, hands down, I would mm. I would buy mm-hmm. and, and devour because he knows how to do it. That's very cool. And we had some, some uh, great discussion around. He's got a uh, uh, an episode, actually, I'm looking forward to when it comes up, of the Ultimate Spider-Man, I believe it is. Mm. Um, and how I think he was, had almost gotten a, a story in for one of the things under, um, Dwayne McDuffie before he died. Huh. Dwayne McDuffie was, uh, one of the guys who did Milestone, one of the writers there. He also did a lot of work on, um, some of the various DC cartoons, uh, and animated features. He was one that was, a, a I think a, a very underrated writer, um, because he just very, Seemed to be a low-key kind of a guy, but a mm-hmm. really talented writer. Anyways, uh, so seeing Tom's work when it comes on the air and stuff, I again, 
door opening for him in terms of doing animation uh, writing and stuff. That's, That's very awesome. cool. You know, I, I love talking to these creators, seeing how their year has gone or since the last time I've seen them, what they're excited about, what, what they think about what's going on mm-hmm. in the industry. Well, and one thing that C2E2 has going for it that used to be the case at San Diego 20 years ago and no longer is, is you can, if you're polite about it and if you're low key about it, walk up when there is absolutely no line and no commerce going on. You can walk up to the actors, for instance, and have a brief conversation with them. And in the case of David Ramsey from Mm -hmm. Arrow, I walked up to him and gave him our business card and told him we'd done the podcasts on Arrow. And if he was very polite at first, just, you know, giving the nod, I've, I've heard this kind of spiel before reaction. I said, I just wanted to tell you one thing we mentioned in our podcast that others might not have mentioned and told him our idea for the two hour movies made out of the flashback scenes right. and talked with him about it. And after about two minutes, he flipped over my business card, said, I need a pen to jot down some notes, because while I really hope our producers have already had that idea, just in case they haven't, I think I'll mention it. That's one of the things I like about the guys on Arrow, because Stephen Amell seems to be the same way. When they hear a good idea, they take it back and try to get it acted on. Yeah. They are... Trying to to really respect the fans and our our in investment in their property. Yeah, well, and as I mentioned to him when I was telling him what we had discussed, I said, you know, the from my perspective, the advantage Arrow has is the cast is still together. You're getting ready to film another season. You could film transition scenes and smooth it out and pop it up for an upcoming hiatus, which three, four. Ten years down the line, your cast will not be together. It will not be simple to film transition or scenes. Or they will have aged. Actually, I don't know how many transitions they would need, at least for that first year. Exactly. In- but, hey, do it while you can. Yeah. And when I pointed out to him how few shows, as in I can't think of another one, have done that with the writing, we had a great little talk about just how unique and high quality the writing of the show is. And that that's one of the reasons he really enjoys being on that show. Being able to do a season-long arc of the flashbacks, have that play out, and have it relevant to each individual uh, episode? Yes. That's amazing. It is. You know, and Arrow is a show that I don't think I could persuade our parents to watch. It's not their genre. It's not their type of show. But when I came back from C2E2 and I had a dinner with our parents and I'm telling them about the various things we did and the people we met, I said, and I got to talk to David Ramsey. He's an actor. And at first their eyes start to glaze over. And I said, you know, he plays the mayor on Blue Bloods. And suddenly their ears perk up and they said, really? That actor we know. Yeah. He's a great actor. You know, you might actually be able to get them hooked on it, or at least willing to sample it, if you were to pitch it as essentially a modern-day Zorro. Very true, because they do love the Zorro story, and that is kind of a story that appealed to that generation. It's a cross between that and Robin Hood. Yeah. So yeah, I think if pitched properly, you can can get our parents into that kind of a show again, just by, hey, you're familiar with this actor, 
here's the kind of show you've liked, here's how it is like that. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I definitely noticed, because we just had dinner with them this evening, where, yeah, when you mentioned, oh, it's the mayor on Blue Blood, yeah, that that got their attention. Yeah, and, you know, there are times when you you kind of have to judge your audience and their generation and Absolutely. play to it. Well, and I think our parents have got to find it a little interesting that we're able to go to these conventions and interact with the actors on the shows we like. When I told them that he flipped over the business card and took notes on our conversation, they did a double take and said, now, wait a sec, what did you say to him? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, just like them, it it's incredibly flattering isn't the right word. It's it's respectful. It is. It is. They're you know? they're they're, list- they're not taking the fans for granted. Yeah, they don't feel above us. Well, and the way that he's flat out said, "I really hope the producers already thought of that, given how they wrote the show," was such a thoughtful way to phrase it. In terms of, I hope they see that in their own writing, mm-hmm. because he respected that I saw that in the writing. Well, the first panel we went to on Thursday, Friday. Sorry, it was Friday, because Thursday we flew out. The first uh-huh. panel we went to on Friday uh-huh. was the Unmasking the Heroes panel. I have to flip towards the end of that panel on you because it relates to something you've already said. Okay. When you are so in awe of a character and respect a character and are motivated by a character so much that you cosplay that character at a convention... There is nothing so impressive to an entire room full of attendees as you walking up to a microphone and telling a panel of four guests, including the person you are cosplaying, I love all of your shows, especially yours, but my question isn't for you, it's for someone else. I I do think that, yes, if you have a question for somebody, ask the question. But this panel had had David Ramsey, Diggle Fromero, it had Raphael uh, Sparge, who plays um, Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy Cricket uh, on on Once Upon a Time, and I I'm ninety nine percent sure the name of the movie was Murder One Hundred One from way way back in like the nineteen eighties. He's got a IMDb page that just keeps going. Yeah, it's a movie with Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. Back before Pierce Brosnan was the infamous, famous, you-know-him-from-everything actor. Um, and Pierce Brosnan was a college professor. And Raphael Sparge was his college student. Go look for that movie. It's amazing. Very talented actor. Uh, but again, character actor by and large. Yes. He plays bit parts here and there. But but once you know him, or once you recognize him, oh my god, watch for him. He's amazing. So he was on there. Um, Jewel State, who played Kaylee on Firefly, Dr. Keller on um, Universe. Stargate Atlantis. Oh, Atlantis. Thank you. Um, and Owen Mackin. And Owen Mackin from uh, Merlin. Merlin and Night Shift, currently Night on Shift NBC. N- haven't watched either of those two shows. I had no clue who he was. I recognized him, and it took me a while, and then somebody said Night Shift, and I was like, got it. Night Shift is a great show. I talked to Owen Mackin afterwards. And he's from Ireland, and he it took him a moment to understand the compliment I had just paid him. The volunteer next to him never got it. He plays a character, an army guy with PTSD. And I said, you are doing a show that is so incredibly good 
that the Vietnam vet in my life can't watch it. Mm-hmm. And he, once he thought about that, he recognized what the compliment was. It's like you're doing a very realistic, believable job, which is why he, yeah. Yeah, you're doing such a great show about PTSD that the guy who understands PTSD can't watch it. You know, and once he got that, he's like, well, that's interesting. So we were talking a little bit because he had given a, a story about Secret Service during the panel. And I was telling him about a situation where I had encountered a Secret Service agent who decided to play a practical joke on someone. And he had encountered Secret Service agents who were only extraordinarily serious. And he had never really thought through the there's another side to Secret Service agents. Mm -hmm. They do go off duty. And uh, yeah. So, but we had some very interesting conversations because he was saying coming from Ireland, coming from a country that doesn't really have an active army in an active war situation. He's really learned a lot playing this character yeah. in, who served in the U.S. Army and has PTSD for the past two seasons. Well, I hadn't realized the show had been on that long. Yeah, it's... Just it just totally flew under my radar. It's basically summer seasons right okay. now. It's on uh, about its eighth or ninth episode of the second season. And it does these really great plot lines that I'll talk about with the Vietnam vet we know. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the things I'll say, you know, so this is a line of dialogue they whipped out. Like uh, they have a character that recurs and uh, he had a leg amputation. And in a recent episode, he said, you know, prior to this, I was the guy who could have built a house. Now I'm the guy who can't even change a light bulb. Mm. And the look I got as he said, oh, do I know that feeling? It was just the, you know, it was almost the that hit too close to home this exact week. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which is why he doesn't watch the show. But he loves hearing about it and knowing that that show is on the air and people are finding out. Well, that's something that I think, unfortunately, for our generation and, and those younger than us, between the Gulf Wars and stuff like that, Afghanistan, we've had military presence here in America on so many continents over the last few decades. I think everybody knows somebody who served and maybe come back in not so great a shape, either physically or mentally. Well, see, that's that's the assumption. Um, and I wonder how true the assumption is. There was a time when World War II, that was a statement of fact. That That's a fair point because, I mean, we know a lot more people in the military than perhaps a lot yeah. of people do. According to an organization called the Navy League, which uh-huh. is made up of people who have served in the Got Navy, it. only 7% of Americans have an actual personal connection to someone in the Navy. I wonder how that expands if you include the other branches. As do I. But I've still got to imagine that people are aware that we've sent people overseas. Oh, exactly. But shows like this are just bringing to the forefront these issues. And that's my point. Is yeah. We know we've sent people over, and now to have an understanding, mm-hmm. even if it's fictionalized, as to both the physical and mental price some of these people are paying. Well, they did an entire episode where one of the subplots, and it was beautifully done, was the fact that you could have served multiple tours as an army medic over in Afghanistan or Iraq. And when you came back, not 
been considered qualified to be an EMT in the civilian world, you would have needed $10,000 worth of education to be an EMT as a civilian. But that's the job you were doing in the U.S. Army and in the combat under zone. really bad situations, too. Yeah. That's just not right. Yeah. You know, and yet all these commercials say, we'll teach you skills that transfer into the civilian world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are these are issues and things that if more people understand, well, once that particular issue became understood, two of the branches, and I forget which ones they are, I'm sorry, have been able to get their medics skills deemed transferable to EMTs. That's awesome. If, I mean, if we've got people who've got the skills, exactly. they shouldn't have to go buy them into Exactly. You know, uh, acceptability or whatever. Exactly. So now we just need to get for all branches of the service, yeah. not just two. And I think it's fantastic that this awareness is being raised through shows like Night Shift. Well, and I think that's, that's again, the power of, of fiction, of storytelling, is it gets a lot of concepts and ideas and situations out there to the masses and eventually to the people who can actually make them right. Mm-hmm. And those are the kinds of shows I enjoy watching. I thought this was an interesting panel because they had a good mix. I thought it was poorly named. Yeah. Unmasking the heroes. Well, none of these are the heroes. They're not the sidekicks either. They're supporting cast, key characters, whatever. Uh, it was moderated by... Claire Kramer. Claire Kramer, who played, I think, Glory in a epi- uh, season of, of Buffy, one of the big bads. I want to say she did an excellent job moderating. She did. And she's somebody who could have been a panelist in and of her own right. I mean, but... Um, I was unfamiliar with Claire Kramer prior to the panel, and based on seeing her on the panel, I honestly thought, before IMDBing, etc., I thought, you know, this must be one of those uh, space hosts Almost type. professional moderator-ish sort of people. Yeah. No, no, not at all. She's done a number of things. Uh, Buffy's where I really recognized her from. I think she's done a couple other TV movies and stuff like that. I was really impressed by the hosting job she did. The one that where I thought she really shined as a moderator, going back to the comment you made, they've, they've gotten it open to, to Q&A. A lot of people are coming up to the mic. I love all your shows. My question's for David. Next one, I love all your shows. My question's for David. Maybe, you know, Raphael would, would get it or whatever, but nope, next for David. Finally, somebody comes up. I love all your shows, especially yours, uh, uh, Jewel. My question's for David. And she's like, no, you're dressed as me. Because the person was dressed as Kaylee from Firefly. And, you know, the whole time is, is, is Jewel just wasn't feeling much love. And Jewel has a fantastic sense of humor. She was hilarious. I think she likes playing the underdog. You know, I found myself um, doing video snippets during the panel so I could try and get accurate quotes. And I'm looking forward to having time to go back through there and try and pull out some of the things that were said. Just because most of the panels were just, I was laughing so hard my sides hurt mm-hmm. at the end of that panel. Well, she's, Jules is given this this young lady, I presumably, I don't know. I yeah. couldn't tell. I couldn't see from the mic. But this this lady, a little bit of a hard time. You come dressed up as my character, and you don't have a question for me. What's up with that? David gets asked the question, answers it. Before the lady's allowed to leave the mic, Claire, the moderator, is like, Okay, 
So, so my question for you, what did you like about the character that made you dress up as that character? In other words, what did this young lady over here, Jewel, do such a great job at that you really liked? Mm-hmm. Yes. And just kind of a, let's throw some love. I mean, it's like, yes, that was a good way to, to put the person who asked the question, not on the spot, not under the hot seat. No. But gave them a chance to share their fandom. Yes. You dressed up as this character. Why? Yes. Well, and she had she had tried asking each of them earlier what makes your characters heroes and mm-hmm. things like that. And each of the actors had really had a hard time with that question. So here was a chance to ask one of the fans. Okay, clearly you see the heroism in the right. character. So help the actor to understand what did they do to so inspire you to what be about in this room? That character resonated with you to that degree. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was a beautifully handled way to to really take a situation and spin it. Mm-hmm. In in a very non-argumentative, defensive, threatening or any in a really positive way. Yeah. So I, I thought she did a, a phenomenal job moderating that. Yeah. Um, and it was just a fun panel, well done. The other time I thought she shined was the second to last question. Yes. Now, we've been to enough panels and enough conventions. Not the first time we've heard this question. Probably won't be the last. Uh, I think we'd seen it at uh, the Stephen Amell one up in, in Fan Expo. But Guy gets up to the mic here. This thing again. You've got four celebrities on the panel. Another celebrity hosting the panel. I love all of your shows. And at this point, everyone's thinking, "Oh, the questions for David." And it's like, "No, my questions for none of you. It's for my fiance. No, it's for my girlfriend. My girlfriend. Will you marry me? The, the will you marry me question at these panels. I've got mixed feelings on. On the one hand, I am of a belief as a convention goer." If you get up to the mic, you've got an obligation to ask a question that's of interest to the group mm. about one of the people on the panel that they're in a position to, to answer. Not what the hell's happening next season. Yeah. Or what about this? You know, why did your show die? And I know you can't do anything about it, but can you bring it back? You know, kind of silliness. Mm-hmm. The will my, my girlfriend marry me sort of question. On the one hand, I get, oh, wow, it makes an impression and stuff. On the other hand, Everything kind of comes to a screeching halt for the rest of us in the panel who don't know you, don't know your girlfriend, have nothing against you or your girlfriend. Hopefully she says yes. I liked that the panelists couldn't figure out if she had said yes. What I liked a lot was was Claire's like, okay, do we have an official photographer here? Yes. And it's like, this is special to these people. Let's make sure it's a moment. Let's bring them up on stage, get a group photo with everybody. And when there was no official con photographer, Claire whipped out her cell phone and asked somebody to use her cell phone to take a picture of all the panelists and her with the couple. Yeah. And it wasn't like this guy was trying to Shanghai the panel. No. It kind of was. She, it's like, okay, let's take ownership. This is what's going on. Let's Let's make this happen. Let's make it the best moment we can. This is the first panel of the convention. Let's make this memorable moment truly memorable. She, yeah, she owned it. I, I again, did, I thought she did a great job. Yeah, you know, I was telling somebody about this later, and they asked me, you know, is that cool or is that hokey? And at the time, I gave the answer, that depends. Does the crowd boo? There are times where it's like, you know, it works. Yeah. I thought the time it, with uh, with Stephen Amell or whatever, that one kind of worked. This one kind of worked. 
There are other times I think it would grind it to a complete halt. The person would have nothing of it. Boom, shot down. It's like, ooh, yeah. You know, I've seen crowds that they booed and the actors on stage called them on. As they should. And in that case, where I'm thinking of the booing that happened, it wasn't a marriage proposal. It was when a kid asked a question. Well, like a kid asking um, an actor to make their signature expression so they could take uh, a picture of it or something like that. Pose for me. Yeah. The dance monkey kind of a... You know, or to say their signature line or something like that, you know... And one actor said it very well, and they said, you know, I'm a parent, and I would want no one to treat my child yeah. the way those of you that booed just treated that child. And I treat every person who comes to that microphone the way I would want my friend, my family, my child to be treated. With courtesy, with respect. There is, I think, an art to being a really good panelist at some of these conventions. Yes. And there are a couple of people that just naturally are that way. Yes. I think there's also an art to asking a really good question at one of these panels. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why I usually don't get up to the mic. Yeah. I'm going to fumble. I'm going to, uh, uh, you know, and have no clue what I'm going to say. Even if I've got what I think is a good question, which I usually don't. Asking a good question, conducting a good interview, it's an art form that, quite frankly, I consider myself to be lacking in, and it's something I don't care for about myself, but I'm an observer of people, and one of the things I noticed, for instance, was Raphael Sparge, who I've respected as an actor for decades. Mm -hmm. When I was walking through the autograph area, I noticed there was one person in very serious cosplay a woman with a dress with a train mm. and i wondered quite frankly can this woman even sit down it was that intense a cosplay right. costume okay and he had come around to the front of his table to take a photo with her and talk with her and everything there was no volunteer with him no c2e2 person with him when she arrived now c2e2 person seemed to be walking down towards him as the cosplayer got ready to leave. And when she got ready to leave, Raphael Sparge bent down and picked up the things she had set down and handed her props and bag back to her mm -hmm. before telling her he hoped she had a good time at the convention and saying goodbye. Oh, that's just very gentlemanly of him. Exactly. And there are so many people who just can't be bothered to be nice in the modern day. That seeing a gentleman... I got the impression during the course of the panel, and it was maybe the way he made a point of smiling at people and stuff like that, it's important to him to be nice to people. Yeah. That he... I don't think he feels he's a grand celebrity of any sort, but he le realizes he has a celebrity aspect. And it's it, it, it seemed to me that it was important to him to do right by us, the yeah. audience. Yeah, yeah. As a responsibility, as it's the right thing to do. But, and and he, I respect that. And I could be totally making this up. I could be totally off base. But that's what I got. I got the impression he really wanted to give good answers to the questions that were directed to him. And it really intrigued me because, I mean, I've seen him play Jiminy Cricket mm -hmm. on Once Upon a Time. I've seen him in TV shows where he played, you know, the lawyer that 
you know, he he was not quite befuddled, but he was in over his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen him play a serial killer. You know, I, I've seen him in the whole spectrum of characters. So I really didn't know what kind of person is he. I think there are aspects of the Jiminy Cricket character as seen on Once Upon a Time or the, the, the storybook version of the character, at least, that resonates with who he is or wants to be, at the very least. Mm-hmm. Because I definitely saw some parallels there. It's funny, when we went to San Antonio last year, saw William Shatner. First time I think I'd seen him at a convention. Mm, first time I ever had. And there was a person asks question. He talks for a bit. Did, did I answer your question? Yes. Am I done? Can I get off the hook? Yes. Okay, next question. And with 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 Raphael, it was a matter of not am I done, am I released from an obligation, but actually genuinely seeming to want to give you the thought and answer deserved for the question. Did I give you enough without hogging the microphone because I am sharing the stage with three other people who I am determined to make sure have equal time? Yes, he was respectful of, of the other panels, never tried to hog. And it, there was one question he got asked, I forget what it was, but it's a, let me give this, I, I think it was on the range of characters he's played. Mm. And and he gave a, a, a fairly, I thought, thoughtful, well-reasoned response in 60 seconds or less, maybe, mm-hmm. with a, there's, there's a world more I could do, but we're on a shared panel, kind of. Yeah. Wave of the hand, not of, uh, you know, whatever, without really pointing out that he can't go on. Yeah. But this isn't the place to go on. It's. That was when I realized he's determined not to hog that mic. He wants to share evenly. Yeah. I, I came out of that panel with a lot of respect for him. I did too. There was one question that went to David Ramsey. Um, and David Ramsey was basically conversing with Raphael Sparge as he was giving the answer. Mm-hmm. And it was the story about John Barrowman. Mm. You know, and it was funny because Raphael Sparge was laughing his head off as he's hearing the story about John Barrowman with the, uh, I don't think I have a story like that to tell. It was kind of a, what's the most embarrassing story you've got kind of a. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking later it was the, pretty much the opposite of a story Christopher Judge had told. Oh, absolutely. Um, which was another flip side to it. You know, but it was interesting to me watching Raphael Sparge kind of be on the receiving end of David Ramsey talking to him because it was like Raphael Sparge realized David Ramsey needs a direct eye contact person, even though he's talking to the whole room. He's talking to the crowd, but I'm pl- I am their I am their stand-in. Yeah. Whereas Raphael Sparge always seemed to be trying to make contact with the entire crowd. It's and- an interesting difference of their personalities. Yeah. It was very interesting to watch. I think Ramsey's more comfortable on a one-on-one. Yeah. Whereas, again, Raphael, he'd been doing this for, for ages. Yeah. Not that he's that old. I mean, he's just... Well, going back to, I remember watching him play a college student. He was on, um, I think, Voyager, even, as a, a recurring. Yeah, it just... I mean, he's, yeah. he's, he's been doing it for at least two decades, if, if not longer. Um, It's, yeah, it was... Um, it was a fun panel. It was it was good, and 
the, the one thing we didn't talk about with this panel, I do want to talk about before we, we move on, is how it started. <laughs> oh, okay. I We have come up with a few different ways to uh, to approach that, to talk about that between ourselves. Um, I asked uh, one of our friends if there was a new trend that I wanted to refer to as con line dancing. There's something about, and I've noticed it more with C2E2 than other conventions, where they had a DJ out in the lobby area. Yes. And you got the the beat track going down. It's like you're at a rave. To the point Claire actually mentioned that when she started. I haven't been on a panel. It started with an impromptu rave before. This thing started with a a mix master and a, a DJ pumping up the crowd. Yeah, and he was an actual DJ. We're not referring to him as one. A guy with, a, I think, an actual spin table or tracks, or I, yeah. I don't know. I'm not a DJ. But another guy who's, who's sitting there at the mic, it's like, okay, let's pump it up, you know? Fist bump, switch, okay, let's pump it up. Let's, you know, raise the roof, lower the floor, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it was one of those that has a thump a thump a thump a kind of a beat going, which to me, I'm a more sedate, laid back kind of a guy. I don't need the thump a thump a thump a kind of music going on if you've ever been to a conference where between sessions during the break time they had you stand up and do the not quite yoga at your desk to make sure you weren't getting stiff from sitting through too many sessions that's what this reminded me of this was geek line dancing no two ways about it and Um, it was just one of those things that you know we're listening to it for a good five ten minutes before the thing starts they're doing the the raise the roof, the the fist bump, switching hands, all this kind of stuff. He's driving the whole thing. And, and I lean over to you and I'm thinking, you know, I've really got to learn the American Sign Language for what the hell is going on? Just because as all that's going on, I couldn't help but thinking, you know, in some of the bigger panels I've been to at San Diego, you've got the person off on the side doing the, the sign language and stuff. Here you've got people gesturing wildly and all this. And I'm thinking, you know, if I'm deaf... I'm confused. <laughs> yeah, really. And it would just be a hilarious prank to play on some poor con volunteer or helper as you're sitting there gesturing legitimately. I can't understand what's going on. Why are they spasming like this? Is this an epileptic seizure? You know, kind of a. I just. I don't. <laughs> that's that's my sense of humor. Yes, it is. I am related to you. But I don't recall seeing that at any of the other. Uh, that was also the main panel hall. Yes, it the, was. The big room. It was. Um, and it was a decent-sized room. Uh, it was. How big would you say? Oh, um, that I don't know. I don't think it was quite ballroom 20 size at oh, San Diego. Oh, definitely not. But it was, it was good size. No, it was more like a 6AB. 6A. It was something that we were not in the way back. But we were uh, two-thirds of the way back. We were far enough back. We were glad they had the big screen. Glad we had, they had the big screen, but I also felt I could actually see the people. Yes, yes. And one of the other things I want to mention that I thought was odd with this, or not odd, but unusual, different, new. They had couches set up. It's not people behind a, a table. Yes. But also, at least two of them, Raphael and Owen. Owen, had lapel mics, whereas the others had handheld. Yes. And- which was good for David. Because <laughs> David Ramsey... Was going and he was talking, he was cutting in, he was cutting out, he was cutting in. Basically, anytime he talked, he cut out. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And people are like, hey, we can't hear you. And he's, he's going, and when he finally, and they're bringing a new mic over and swap it out. And of course, Claire handled that very gracefully too. Yeah. 
it, it was a fun panel. Um, it was a lot of a lot of good stuff. Um, now Friday, the rest of my day there, I went to the social media panels. The intro and the intermediate it was done by uh, Buddy Scalera uh, and somebody from IBM. I thought they did a good job, but I was hoping for a little bit more hands-on, practical versus tactical, theoretical, if you will. Yeah. Um. So at some point I may, um, I'm sure Buddy will be at San Diego. I may talk with him about maybe having him on and stuff. Because oh. I, I know uh, I am not a master at social media whatsoever. I am lacking entirely in an understanding of Facebook. The one thing I do know is the more people that click like on your post, the more people that see your post. And that's yeah. why I always encourage the listeners, etc. Please just. Click like so other people will see it. Help out in that word of mouth advertising manner. I recorded the ones uh, on my phone with, with Buddy. Good. Uh, and I thought he did a really good job. But again, there was more I was wanting and needing than I felt I... I, mm. I didn't walk away... Well, I, I take it back. I, I came away with a, a couple of notes and stuff, some things to check out, where the slides are and stuff like that. It was Michelle Killebrew was the other person. Um, and I, I, I thought they had some good information. I just wanted... Again, a bit more tactical, practical that I could go with. Um, but really, the rest of the day, uh, both a little at the beginning and then after the panels, I spent walking the floor. Uh, we did some of that with Linda and Erica uh, before we split off, because I guess the first panel was at uh, one thirty or 2? It was a different day. No, that was about one thirty or 2 that day. Yeah. Um, and what I like about C2E2 is... It's got a, a decent sized floor, a uh, convention hall. But I felt during the the just that Friday, I was able to get through uh, most of it. I went through the um, obviously I skipped the autograph stuff. That's just not my thing. But I went through most of the the booth that day, and then saved Artist Alley for later. In hindsight, I really need to get in the habit of doing Artist Alley. I think earlier in the conventions. Before they get kind of swamped with the big crowded day uh, yeah. or people clearing out Sunday. There were a couple of people I went to talk to Sunday. Poof, they were gone. Interesting. I went back to talk to um, uh, Steve Bryant. He was out. But, I mean, some of these people like us where they've got, you know, day jobs to get back to. Yeah. They got to get back home and stuff. And, you know, for uh, it's one thing to do a weekend con and just take, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll fly out Thursday night, be there Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and in the afternoon fly home. You know, but that means if, if you wait until late on a f Sunday to go check with some people and stuff, they're not there. Yeah. And I don't fault them for that. I think it's yeah, exactly. the right choice. Yeah. Um, so that was that was most of my Friday. Uh, Saturday, that was when I walked um, Artist Alley quite a bit. Broke that up into a couple of chunks based on, on one panel's work. And the panel I went to was the Mark and Bill Save Comics. This was uh, Mark Wade, one of the two panels I went to that he was on. And uh, Bill Willingham, who does Fables, um, and who's also done some other things. And the way they had set this up was they had agreed on uh, like a dozen or so questions, put them in a hat, and they were going to pick them out and deal with them in that order. But they'd both seen the questions. They'd had time to think on them. Mm -hmm. It was just what order they came up in. Yeah. And they were on things like con etiquette, creating comic, expanding comic culture. And by and large, um, there was nothing there that I thought was just really great answers. I mean, they were good answers. Don't get me wrong. They weren't bad answers at all. But, you know, oh, uh, their take on copyright was Willingham basically saying, you should get it. It should be for 20 years. If you sell it, start the clock. It runs for 10 years. That's it. That You're over. You're done. 
kind of thing versus the, the Disney properties that last forever or whatever. Um, one of the questions that was interesting was kind of creator owned versus company owned, right, wrong, indifferent kind of a deal. And kind of what do writers owe the readers? And that, that I felt actually I got the most interesting answers. Willingham's answer was to finish the story. Hmm. And I'm like, damn, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. If you start a story as a reader, if you're serializing it out, I have an inherent expectation you will resolve it, maybe not to your complete full original plan or satisfaction, but to a satisfying conclusion. Um, and Mark Wade, same sort of idea, but he phrased it as best effort. And there was a comment of, okay, and Wade's comment on this I, I really liked was that creativity is kind of like one of those refill automatic magic refilling bowls or whatever. As you empty it out, new ideas come in. So if you're saving your really good stuff for when you do creator owned, but you're making your day job doing the, the, the corporate properties, there's something kind of inherently not right about that mm. and counterproductive about that. Mm -hmm. Because those, those good ideas you're saving are blocking the well. Yeah. Um, in hindsight, I might have enjoyed this panel more. It was very good. And these guys are, are really uh, thoughtful and gave good answers. But I think I would have enjoyed it more if they had started it with, instead of here 13 questions we may or may not get to, you've got, you know, uh, two, three minutes, five minutes, whatever. Here, what is your plan? How do you fix comics? Other guy, here's your plan. Rebuttal, you know, more, I don't want to say debate style, but more, yes, you had a good idea for the copyright stuff. Why should that happen? What's the what's the rationale? Why why would people make that change? Mm -hmm. Sell the idea. Yeah, okay. not just it would be good if it would be fair if. Yeah, but we don't live in that world. Mm -hmm. How do we get there? Yeah, why should we get there? Um, so it was good, but a little disappointing in in some respects too. Uh, but I always listen to I like listening to to Mark Wade speak. Uh, Willingham, I find very interesting too. I'd actually talking to him uh, talked with him at one point in San Diego. It was after a not too dissimilar panel about, uh, you know, our comics doomed or whatever. And there was one retailer who I just thought had just such a, a rosy viewpoint on that that I was hanging loose. It's like, ah, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to say anything. Um, and guy is like, oh, if you want to talk to him, you can't. It's like, no, no, I, I don't think what I've got to say is kind of appropriate the right thing. He's like, well, what is it? Well, I think she's got kind of rose colored glasses on. Oh, you should tell her. It was Willingham. He's just, you know, cause, and it was, um, oh shoot, I forget her name. It was one of the people higher up on, uh, the Comics Pro organization and wound up talking to her for probably better part of an hour after the panel walking around. She, again, had a very upbeat, uh, optimistic viewpoint on where comics were at the time, where they were going. And this was early in the new 52 or maybe even before the new 52 or whatever. And, you know, whether things panned out the way she thought they would or not, I I certainly respect her optimism, her outlook, and why she had it. So, yeah, if you look at it as a defeatist thing, that's all you're going to get. Yeah. You know, not her exact words, but same sort of a thing. So I went to, to that panel followed by the Valiant panel. And this was kind of a build as a 25-year retrospective or whatever. And it was more, here's what we got coming up for the next two years or something. Mm -hmm. And Valiant, I think, is has... One, a, a long history. The new version of the company has only been around a couple of years. They've been respectful of the past properties while revitalizing them and doing some stuff. The big thing I took away, and I was pleased to, to take this away, they've got a solid two-year plan for a number of their titles, specifically uh, 
Bloodshot Reborn and Ninjak. They've also, why I appreciated knowing they've got a game plan, is it's felt like lately they're rotating through titles. Mm. It's like, okay, let's do this for a bit, let's do this for a bit, let's do this for a bit, let's do this for a bit. Now, it may turn out that two years from now, Ninjak, which is currently on its second or third issue, might be not at issue, what, 26 or whatever, but have gone through a number of different titles. But even if that happens, I'm reasonably confident that the story they are setting out to do over the next two years will have been told maybe as what appears to be a series of miniseries versus mm. one ongoing. I don't know. It may be one ongoing. But they've got a game plan. Mm-hmm. They're sticking to it. They're not just, well, they're not floundering. Mm-hmm. They've got a, a good idea and are running with it. And I, I appreciate that. They've also got uh, significant backing now. I think to the tune of a nine-figure movie deal, and they're building up a cinematic universe with Bloodshot and Jack and Harbinger and a bunch of the other stuff. So Marvel's cinematic universe not only is proving to be a blueprint for DC, but also for Valiant and potentially some other companies, hmm. which I found interesting. Um, they know what they're doing. They're doing good stuff, and I really hope a lot more of the comic reading audience gives them a shot because I don't think they're selling as well as the quality of, of the material warrants. Mm. Um, but that was that was fun to go to, good talking with them. <laughs> um, that was, and the rest of the day I, I spent again walking the floor and stuff. Unlike San Diego, where I'm doing good to get through the entire floor once during the convention, I was able to kind of zip back through certain areas a second time or two. Mm. It was interesting, because they had some, some people that were no-shows, so... Certain booths either moved locations or showed up later or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the one hand, I like that. On the other hand, I hate that. <laughs> I, I despise it in San Diego because it's too big. Don't expect me to go back. Yeah. If I hit the the this section, this quadrant of the, the floor once, count yourself lucky. Yeah. You know, it's 40 hours to walk all that, the equivalent of 10 football fields, and stop and look at everything. That's tough. But CTE2 is a nice, comfortable-sized convention where I can go back, I can spend some time at the booth, I can talk with people, mm-hmm. and not feel like, ooh, man, that means I'm not ever going to see this one section of the convention. Um, and there are a couple of times that I find going through the same aisles from a different direction. That's what I was thinking. It, it's like seeing a different aisle. Yeah. Because things as you're walking down from the one uh, the north end of the hall to the south end or, you know, whatever – you, you see certain things that catch your eye line, but if you go in the same, if you then get to the end of the aisle, you turn and go back down. You just walk down it. You won't see anything. You will see something different. Yeah, definitely. Because you're seeing into the booth from the, the opposite angle, 180 degree. Things that weren't visible are things, you know, it's, um, mm-hmm. it's impossible to take it all in from any one angle. Yeah. There are a bunch of, of video cameras out. A lot of them are more in the Kickstarter stage than actual buy them off the shelf stage but they're 360 degree cameras and i would love to go through one of these conventions with one of these where it's just kind of you know above me on a stick or whatever where i could then go back through and see okay from wherever i was at any given point having literally a complete spherical view of everything that was to be seen yeah that would be interesting what did i walk past and not even notice that if i just turned around or been facing the other direction or whatever would have cost me a couple hundred dollars because mm-hmm. I would have bought something. And it's good to know after the fact than during, I think. Sad but true. Yeah. Well, you could have spent $17,000 on an Epson printer. 
that was one of the things we looked at uh, Sunday. And we'd seen that booth a couple of times, and we finally just went and asked, okay, what's going on here? It was the Autodesk Wacom, I think, booth. Yeah. And it was a island booth, so square around it. On two sides of it were a bunch of the huge Wacom Cintiq tablets, I guess, which are cool. I'm less impressed by now that I've got a Surface Pro 3, well, and a Surface, um, where you've got the, okay, I can do the drawing on the screen, yada, yada. So tablets, I think, make this a little more commonplace than these, which are full-blown, high-res, artistic-level, you know, computers. Mm-hmm. So don't get me wrong. They're impressive machines. Given my artistic ability, I don't need that impressive hardware. I don't have that. I don't have the skill to back it up. Uh, but that was two sides of it. A third side seemed to be taking photos of cosplayers. Yeah, I never ventured to that side to I did, figure it out. I confused me as part of the backdrop, in addition to saying Autodesk, whatever, had the, um, the not the real sense, but uh, a logo for the sensor thing that seemed to be a Intel version of Connect depth sensor interesting and i kept hoping they would have one to, to to demo there they didn't but then on the corner of the booth along that other side they had this pretty decent sized printer for printing t-shirts yeah you literally put the t-shirt into the printer you know, line up the tag on this little mark tug 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 on the two uh, armpits put a little thing over it to hold it in place Let's zoom on in, pick your picture off of your SD card, click print, and in a single pass, it prints onto any organic material or plant material, I guess. It's the kind of thing, if I were an up-and-coming publisher, didn't have a t-shirt deal, and could partner with Epson, it's like, hey, I want to go in with you on a booth, here's what I want to do, let's show off your printer, here's all the covers I've got, let's do this, I want, you know. Yeah. Um, by and large, I want you to showcase my material on your shirts. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a, it's a hell of a way to do it. Yeah. He also had an excellent printer for, uh, canvases that were 13 by 19. He didn't. It was a roll kind of a, uh, uh, paper thing off. Yeah. And the one thing I was thinking about with that, the width was how, 18 inches or whatever? 13 by 19. 13. Um, most of, if, if you think back to uh, the Moy's booth, the Moy, uh, Jeff and Phil Moy, we hang out with them. They're great guys. They used to do uh, Legionnaires. Like many people in Artist Alley, um, they've got the, uh, the, the backdrop mm-hmm. kind of a deal where it comes in almost a glorified, not poster tube, but uh, carrying case kind of a thing. You take it out, you, you connect the, the, the three part thing you've got uh seven foot eight foot tall mm-hmm. maybe only six foot whatever um stand you then pull the from the base of the top up you now have again your two foot wide mm. maybe a little wider yeah uh, whatever image you've got and i'm like you know if that printer yeah really could print that kind of a backdrop to where as he goes from show to show he's got his latest work yeah as really? an artist, that's a killer app Yeah. But as it was, this guy could print whatever poster you wanted pretty much on the fly. Uh, If you had the artist or here's, if you're an artist, here's a printer. And the printer was under a thousand. Yeah, it was like, uh, he was showing us two different printers. So I'm a little confused on the prices, but I want to say one of them was 800, one was 500. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was amazing. 
The 800 one was the bigger one with the roll printer. The t-shirt one, of course, was the zillions of dollars. 17000 is what it can be available for if you find it with rebates at the right vendor, is what he said. The part that blew me away was, one, the quality of the shirt you got, I thought was pretty good. It was nice quality, and they did it in a single pass. Really impressed me. He went from, here's the printer, to grabbing a shirt, oh, you want white, okay, flip, flip, get it on the thing. He had it on the thing inside of 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. Pick the image, and inside of another 30 seconds to a minute, it was printing out. He was pulling the shirt off of it, putting it in, a, I guess, a heat press kind of mm-hmm. a deal. With like a piece of wax paper, I wax guess, paper, over it. Wax paper, get it on there. Okay, it's in there for 50 seconds. He would pop the top on that, blow the wax paper off of it. Boom, here's your shirt. Yeah. He, I mean, he, the guy knew how to work the, the equipment. Oh, yeah. And he was quick, and inside of just a few minutes, I mean... You didn't get bored. He had time to talk about the printer a little. Hey, how's your day? Whatever. Without feeling like he was killing time. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just, boom, here's 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 your custom shirt. Yeah. And for this audience, for this venue, if you were to partner that with the right source material, whatever, mm-hmm. it's a hell of a combination. Yeah. I mean, imagine going to a, a booth. Getting your photo taken with somebody who's somebody. Mm-hmm. That image is then, boom, it's on your shirt. It's good to go. And as you're getting your, they're signing it for you or whatever. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, there's so many possibilities. It, it was it was amazing. And it was, again, really nice sh- uh, yeah. shirt and material, quality yeah. uh, printing and stuff. So that was cool. Um, now after that, I went to the trivia panel. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to it for a couple of reasons. One, um, Brian uh, Chrisman from Comic Geek Speak, I knew he was going to be there. I had bumped into him. He was coming down the escalators. I was going up for, I guess, the Mark Wade and Brian and uh, 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 Bill Willingham panel the other day. Um, and he was going to meet somebody, so we couldn't talk. We chatted for a minute. It's like, you know, I want to hang with Brian. I didn't get a chance really much last year at, uh, at Comic-Con. But Brian Christman is just a, a really great guy. Uh, he's been with the, the, the Comic Geek Speak podcast for years and years and years. At least at one point was running it. I've, I'll be honest, I've lost track of who's running that show these days. I think he's back. I know he's back on the show. I don't know if he's running it or not. But either way, I really respect him. He's He's fun to hang out with at cons. Usually has really good stuff he's bought and picked up, be it original art, whatever. Um, big hardcore DC fan like myself. So it's like, yeah, I want to chat with him for a bit. So it's like, yeah, I always wanted to go to one of these Mark Wade panels. So two for one, do that. So we wound up sitting up in front as that thing's going. And before I'm asking, you know, what are you thinking about the new 52? Oh, it's not for him. He's bailed out, that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, it's not the DC it used to be. I get where it's pushed some of us older readers out. It's a shame, but you know, I get it. So had a good conversation with him, but then, you know, the panel starts up and we're watching Four geeks go up against Mark Wade, and of course the thing is being moderated by Mr. Silverage, who used to do a, a column in um, Comic Buyer's Guide, I think, among other places. The guy who knows his Silverage stuff. And the, the thing starts out with, okay, anyone got any Silverage? Wade's asking. Somebody pops up a cover, he's like, okay, that's issue blah blah blah, this is what's going on. And if Mark Wade doesn't have fo- didn't have photographic memory, I would be amazed. And yes, the tense there, I, I, you may not have it anymore. I don't know. <laughs> um, it was set up in, in game show format. There's a toss up question. That side then gets to answer the next 
a couple of questions for progressive points. And at that point, by the end of it, Wade uh, starting to show, I'm not going to say his age. The guy's only 50. Young by, by, by any stretch. Um, but, you know, was, was flubbing an answer to one of those where he would answer it. Say, I know this isn't right, but I think it's this. And kind of, the, oh, you know, and then the guy said, no, that's not right. You know, um, so not, maybe not as, maybe either too fast or not fast enough. Anyways, it then got to where he was behind by, I don't know, 150 points or something like that, maybe less. And then it comes down to more the lightning round kind of a thing where it's just every question's worth so many points. Let's go. And man, he is just nailing these things left, right and center by and large. Uh, because I mean, Mark Wade has the ability for Silver Age comics. You show him the bottom quarter inch or whatever. He can tell you the issue, the title, the, I mean, everything about it. One of the, the sections of the thing was, is it a hoax, an imaginary story, a dream, or did it really happen? <laughs> for issues of Jimmy Olsen. And it's like, okay, in Jimmy Olsen, number blah, blah, blah. You know, he, he turns into a porcupine. He does this, you know, whatever. And, you know, it's like, oh, the four guys are mulling around. Geez, you know, was it this? Was it that? You know, by and large, Wade knew this stuff. Or would get it confused when he was thinking about the other issue where something damn near identical, but not exactly identical happened. And he was right on that one, but not this one. The spooky. So he wins. Uh, which again, not surprising. I've heard him, him defeating a, a panel of, of, you know, uh, geeks single-handedly. Um, but what happened next surprised and alarmed me. I'm sitting in front of the thing in the front row and I'm off a little to the left. So in front of me directly is where the moderator was. To the right, as I'm looking at them, are the four panelists. Furthest on the right is Mark Wade at the far end of the stage. End of the stage. He's won. He's getting up to say, yes, I've won. Goes up a little bit and then seems to vanish behind said desk from, from where I'm looking. He's a magician. Gravity is kind of a harsh mistress, <laughs> as he found out. And it's like you hear a fumble fumble kind of a thing. And everybody's like, oh, my God, what the hell just happened? Is he dead? Oh. And apparently he took a pretty, pretty noticeable bump to the head but uh you know within short order it's i'm okay i'm okay i am okay because <laughs> kind of, i think half of you know not rushing him but it's like you know back off give him some space yeah. and he made sure to get checked out he since posted again on on twitter and whatnot that he survived and i saw him later with some ice and whatnot and it's like that had to suck yeah of course Witty as he is, it's like, well, this was my plan if I lost, too. <laughs> <laughs> Wanted the sympathy vote. Uh, go for the stage dive or whatever after the thing. Um, mm -hmm. It, it would have really sucked if he'd gotten seriously hurt or whatever, because I've been a fan of his writing for, geez, I'm not sure how long, long as I can remember. The work he's done over at DC, Marvel, Boom, where he was editor and chief creative guy over there. I mean, the guy's worked damn near everywhere. He's been an editor. I've talked with him a couple of times at the cons. The stuff he's doing with digital comics and Thrillbent. He's a retailer. I mean, he, to me, a kind of epitomizes is the dream. I'm not a writer. I, I don't have the skills as a writer. I'm, I'm much more analytic than creative. But he is kind of the comic fan made good. Mm -hmm. He has turned this into his livelihood on a professional basis, doing exceedingly well in terms of just creative output, 
hopefully he's happy and, you know, monetarily rewarded for his work. But it does my heart good to know that somebody can grow up with a love of the comics and really kind of live the dream of doing what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having listened to him at many panels over the years, having talked with him a couple of times, uh, in, in, in my heart, I know this, it, this is what he is meant to do. Mm-hmm. You know, and then for him to, to kind of be joking on, on Twitter that, you know, his, his last words in life were nearly red kryptonite. <laughs> I need to rethink my life. It's like, no, you don't. <laughs> You know, I'm I'm really glad he's okay. I'm sorry he took a, a, a nasty fall or whatever. But, you know, his passion for the industry, his passion for the medium, his knowledge of the stuff, his respect for it, his, his respect for the fans. Mm, mm-hmm. you know, he's not up there at these kinds of trivia things to show off. He's doing it because he's one of us. He loves this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he's he's somebody, if I were... A comic publisher created a comic company said, I must have writers. I must have. He's one of the first people I would say, hey, I want you to work, work for me. Because his knowledge of the industry, his knowledge of the, the medium, his, his love of comics, of story, uh, top notch. He, he, he doesn't hold back on, on company owned stuff versus creator owned or any of that crap. He, he's there to tell the best story he can. Mm-hmm. You know, I love that. I respect that. Um, yeah, I look at what again, what he's done with Thrillbent, how he's trying to push kind of the the visual storytelling vocabulary, what digital comics can do that print can't. It's like that's not what I want out of digital, but I love that he's doing it. So you know, it was it was fun to to go to that panel. Um, great to see him win. Not the least bit of a surprise. He's he's again his his knowledge of the minutia of the trivia of the era while he was growing up and stuff, unbelievable. And it's something that I think readers kind of coming up through the ranks today will never have because when he was coming up jimmy olsen was jimmy olsen was jimmy olsen mm. these things either were an imaginary story a dream the hoax or really happened and that's it mm-hmm. the whole retcon of a retcon of a retcon hadn't happened yeah you know if you were to ask today who is jimmy olsen is he a b or c well they, hey, he was kind of all of them and none of them well if you were to ask is a uh, thor male or female who were the original X-Men? Well, let's see. Did you read the comics? When did you start reading the comics? Did you watch the Fox cartoon, X-Men Evolution, the movies? Which movies did you start with? Mm. What do you consider an X-Men? What do you know? It's like it's, it's yeah. just too damn convoluted. Yeah. Um. So it's not that he came from a simpler time, but Wade, to me, epitomizes the, the best that can come of having grown up when he did. And he's, he's just a couple of years older than I am. Uh, great guy. Ton of respect for him. Fun to watch. Uh, I went to the Marvel War Zones panel after that, and that was uh, one of the things I want to talk about. Marvel had a, a booth at the convention, um, and they were giving away these, I guess, folios or whatever you want to call them, that are, and it was funny, they were joking, you can use them as placemats at the the thing. It was a uh, map of the Secret Wars battle world for Secret Wars that's just now about to start soonish, and it's got all 40 or whatever realms and and all the different um mini series and ongoing series that are around these things and the war zone stuff was kind of okay here's some of those war zones that are happening um you know let's let's talk more about them or whatnot and it was a it was an interesting panel um 
a lot of it was stuff I had kind of known, one or two I should have realized but kind of hadn't fully gotten from the solicits because it only kind of blasted through them on the, actually on the flight back. That's why I hadn't gotten it. Um, one of the other things I picked up that, uh, Sunday was the, uh, the previews. They had them at the diamond booth. Yes. Yes. I remember that making one of my bags rather heavy coming off the airplane. It did, but it allowed me to go figure out what my picks for the next preview spotlight were going to be on the flight home versus not having figured that out ever. Um, but these, these battle world maps were kind of cool. And the, the panel was basically them going over, okay, here's some of the stuff we're going to come out with the next couple of months. And it's one of those, if, if you've been following previews and the solicits, you kind of know some of this, but they gave a few more tidbits and a few things here and there. Um, and it was interesting hearing some of the questions asked. Uh, had you thought about using the cross-gen characters and some stuff like that? Um, but it's, it's one of those things that, man, going into the convention season, which C2E2 is one of the early kind of kickoffs of, Convergence is going on at DC with their regular titles on hiatus. Secret Wars is about to start up putting most of the Marvel Universe on hiatus for a while. It's just a wild time to be reading. I think there's a ton of good things, but there's also a lot of what on earth is this stuff going to look like, you know, at the end of the year or, or even just a couple of months from now. Yeah. Now, last year, DC had posters around this size, I think, of kind of the multiverse. And I mm. never saw them at the DC booth, never picked one up. Mm -mm. So I made a point of, of picking this up. I thought this was good looking and well designed from what I saw of it. I thought so too. There are a couple of classified areas. It's like, yeah, well, what's going to be there? Um, but I like how this one almost has a board game feel to it. Yeah. Because you've got all the covers around the four edges. And I'm sure somebody can and should. And if they don't, I will. Uh, okay, you know, start here, roll the dice. When this happens, do this. There's something that's a cross between Monopoly or Trivial Pursuit waiting to happen with this. Yes, yes. So, it, I don't know, it was cool and gives a pretty good outline of, of all the things, all the titles they've got planned. I thought it was a really cool giveaway for them to do. Um, and the fact that Marvel had a good-sized booth. Yeah. And a good-sized crowd around that booth most of the time, I, I was pleased with. Yeah. These publishers just can't do all the different shows, and they've they've got to pick and choose which ones. I think Marvel makes a smart choice. By coming to C2E2, having a good booth presence, and, um, you know, keeping the fans happy that way. Yeah. And doing a number of good panels. Yeah. Well, and I really enjoyed the Orphan Black signing that I went to. Um, that was a case of I wanted to go to the Orphan Black panel, mm -hmm. but it was back-to-back -back with another very popular panel, and that panel had filled up. And I was hearing from people who were up in the room, it's full, and we're not sure everybody's going to leave before Orphan Black. And uh, I thought, you know, there's already a line about to form for the Orphan Black signing. I think I'll just get in the beginning of that line and get myself a guaranteed something smart. instead of missing both. You know, and last year, I walked in straight into everything at C2E2. And this year, I only lined up for maybe an hour for the Orphan Black signing, which when you think about it, for three or four of the opening credits characters for a major show, an hour to line up just to guarantee something, that's nothing, really. Now, for this show, once you take out Tatiana Maslany... Well, that's true. That takes about eight of the, f the feature characters out that's of play. True. That's true. And she wasn't there. So, yeah, you got more of the actors than the characters. Yeah, that's very yeah. true. Uh, Dylan Bruce, Jordan Garvis, 
uh, Ari Mullen, who's the other clone. Ah. Uh, and Maria, Maria Doyle Kennedy. Mrs. S. Mrs. S., who is also Irish. I met two Irish actors this time. I had a great conversation with Maria, actually. I think I surprised her. She tweeted quite some time ago a link to gluten-free art. That's where we found the link from. I remember you sending that, mm-hmm. and it was classic pieces of art with the wheat and gluten removed. Yes, the Last Supper with no bread, for yeah. instance. So I asked her why she had retweeted this out, uh, the, and she just kind of looked at me like, why are you curious? And I said, well, it, it held meaning for me. And she said, well, I know someone who has celiac. And I said, well, I'm a member of that club. And since they were signing something that said clone club, I think the fact that I happened to say club was just doubly funny to her. And I told her that I had shared it with our entire celiac support mm-hmm. group and how, how grateful they were. And she said she gets sent a lot of things about celiac mm. and stuff uh, because people know she knows the celiac. And that was one where she, it just entertained her. So she had shared it. And I thanked her for sharing that. And she was surprised. She's like, well, you know, I'm surrounded by so many people talking orphan black. It's just so random to have gluten-free get brought up. And I really appreciate you thanking me for sharing that and knowing it helped some people. Well, and just being able to connect with some of these people on a people level. Yeah. Versus, oh, I'm just so gaga about this one job you're doing kind of a deal. Well, and letting her know that, you know, to our entire celiac support group, you know, which does a lot of sharing where to go eat and where Mm -hmm. to buy things and stuff. I told her, you know, while it is mostly an information resources group, I posted that as a, you know, okay, this isn't the information we normally share, but every day needs a smile. And this link is full of smiles. Well, to me, the the group, the celiac thing is, 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 it's a support group. Yeah. Because... You know, it's, it's, okay, it's a diet. You know, you, you can't have wheat, oat, barley, and rye, whatever. That's it. Not a big deal, right? No. I, I encourage everybody who's listening to this podcast to think through their last couple of days. Somebody bringing donuts to the office? Now imagine you just can't have them, ever. How about croissants? How about bagels? Whatever. Hey, where do you want to go for lunch today? How about walking around in Artist Alley at C2E2? You know, they've got a place that sells beer there. Mm. in open top cups Mm -hmm. i i will admit i was worried oh somebody gonna jostle that spill some beer on me Mm -hmm. well it's a big deal it's just a little liquid Mm -hmm. oh it's poisonous stuff to me yeah it is a big deal well and i mean i'll be honest how many of you have had to think about the ingredients of your toothpaste yeah i actually had to change toothpastes because the one i was using contained gluten and Again, next time you go on a flight, uh, do you want pretzels with this? No, I don't want pretzels. Yeah. You know? Um, Or where can you go eat at an airport and stuff like that? I mean, that's part of why I really appreciated the fact that, you know, we had people that were making sure that we had food to take with us to the airport on the way back. Mm. There was a a good meal waiting for us the night we got in Mm -hmm. and and stuff like that. It's not something I take for granted. Yeah. Yeah. and it, it's hard to do this kind of research in a city that you're not familiar with. Yeah. You know, plus, is the food going to be any good? Yes. Yes. Having friends who happen to have already eaten at Shoko and Slurping Turtle and know from experience they enjoy the food. Those were the other places we went to. Yes. Um, 
And Slurping Turtle, I was really pleased with this yes. year. The the rice bowl we got was, yeah. was really good. And the sushi. And I'm the a, sushi. The sushi was good. I'm a sushi fan, so the sushi. Oh. Okay, now I see you have a flyer out for the backpack booth that fascinated me. I do. One of the things I made sure to do before we recorded is pull out some of the flyers I picked up that was interesting. Uh, always walking through the convention, it's like, oh, do I want to buy anything mm. or not? And even if I don't, I, I pick up some some flyers. And one of the ones you had sent me to back to actually uh, Sunday before it closed was Equilibrium Urban Survival Gear. Because that's right, I'm an urban survivalist. No, I'm not. I'm lazy bum. Anyways, it does. It's it's like a modular backpack kind of a system. It is slash proof. This thing is made of like ballistic nylon or something like that. So yeah. if I'm afraid of of getting shot uh, with nylon, uh, I guess I'm covered. Yeah, Erica and Linda and I were talking about the fact that we see so many upsides to this product that I'm going to start with the only negative we found to it, which is that we couldn't really tell the weight of the total product once you put all your modules together empty, but it felt heavier than your standard backpack. I would agree with that because it's a thicker material and heavier built. Mm-hmm. And having had some backpacks where the handles break off or something like that, having a durable backpack, particularly a good one for a convention. Very true. You know, one of the things, uh, we, when I did this trip, I was on uh, a rollerboard carry-on and a backpack. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things I did once we got to Linda's place was essentially empty the backpack Mm -hmm. so i could use it for the convention yeah and this modular backpack i mean it's brilliant because it has what i would call a base that reminds me of the kind of backpack you'll see bicyclists using Mm -hmm. and you can attach to it a messenger bag Mm -hmm. looking piece and then either inside that or on the sides or outside you can attach what looks like a camera bag module a module that would fit the microphones we're currently recording on, for instance. Yeah. There are at least nine that I'm seeing littler modules that you could use to sort things or add on things. And you have your choice of sizes of pieces that go on top of that backpacker's base. Well, and it's set up to where there are places you can kind of hook other things onto. Mm-hmm. So it's it's modular, it's flexible. The The website is equnit.com. Mm-hmm. There's equnit.com for, again, equipment or equilibrium or whatever. Um, and you can even skin the bag to where it's got your own logo or a bunch of other things that are... Uh, different options and stuff they're planning to be at san diego comic-con for anyone going there and they mentioned to me that they were expecting to run a special if you went to san diego comic-con and placed an order at the booth at san diego comic-con shipping would be free what i like about this is it's got kind of the the backpack harness Mm -hmm. and then the main body of the backpack kind of snaps onto that with you know clips or whatever securely yes but what i liked about that is had i had that for this convention sheet we do i could have gotten it that way through the airport gotten to the to, to linda's clipped the thing off boom that stays there now i've got a little lightweight mini backpack for just oh i've got some flyers whatever yeah or hey let me now have an empty bag part to clip onto it you know yeah 
kind of uh, aspect to it. And the fact that there are accessory pouches where I could potentially put uh, the Zoom H5 we're using right now to record this, the microphones, all those mm-hmm. things, that'd be handy too. Yeah. So, I mean, the the units, the things here range from, you know, the smallest item, uh, like one of the accessory pouches uh, for a phone or something that could fit probably in the microphone or something else, $15 to, you know, the messenger bag is 100 uh, the blank white skin is, is 10 bucks. Um, but the thing is, you can mix and match and customize. Oh, these are the parts I need. Here's how I want to do it. This has side pockets. This doesn't. Do I want this? It looks really flexible. And it's one of those that I need to spend some time on their website mm-hmm. to figure out what do I need? What do I want? Well, and as I recall, the messenger bags had pockets both inside and outside that yeah. would hold a laptop computer. Like I said, I went over and I looked at it, and I guess I had Erica with me as we're just looking at, okay, how many pockets does this have? Would this help John, or would this just be heavy and not suit his purposes? Is this something where we say, okay, John, the website's sufficient, or is this something where you want to lay your hands on it and get a feel for it before you look at it? And after she and I spent five or ten minutes at the booth, we took a flyer and we're like, okay, we're finding John and sending him to the booth. Yeah. Well, it's one of those I need to, to go through the website, like I said, but I may also come up with, this is kind of what I think, but I may wind up going back there and, you know, I'm trying to figure out, is this even the right thing for me? Because Linda had a really cool Shield Hydra messenger bag. Oh, that Shield Hydra messenger bag where you go flip flop and depending on which way you flipped or you flopped, you're either Shield or your Hydra or you're laying flat and going through a TSA x-ray machine. That was the coolest messenger bag I've ever seen. FYI, I have no idea where she got from, but I wish I did. Uh, we need to find out from her because it was it was cool. Yeah. But this is one that were, if I had the job I had 20, 20 years, years ago. 20, wow, I'm old. <laughs> 20 years ago coming out of college, I uh, I was something of a road warrior. I was spending more time at airports than I was at my own house. Yeah. Um, this kind of a backpack would have been awesome at that point. Yeah. Uh, at this point, I'm old enough and feeble enough that just the weight of it could crush me. But it was something that uh, I'm going to dig into a little more, figure out if it makes sense. Um, because having something that is flexible can can go from you know, okay, I've got a backpack now. Let me clip it off. That doubles as a messenger bag, and I've still got this other thing that can act as a lightweight kind of a backpack. That may be sufficient. Mm-hmm. You know, it may be ideal in some cases. I just need to figure that out. Um, one of the other things. And it was near the, uh, the graffiti booth or one of those t-shirt booths. Mm-hmm. It was not far from Marvel and stuff. It was the Yogibo, um, booth. And it is beanbag type furniture, but it's of different sizes and shapes. And it's one of those where it looks like this beanbag cylinder kind of a thing. You just kind of punch it here, shit here. And now it's like a, a recliner almost. Nice. And they had a bunch of these around. The, the material was really soft. Uh, it looked like it'd be pretty comfortable. Uh, I never did really, you know, get down and, and, and sit in one of them or whatever. But they're set up to where they could be used as a chair, a recliner, a couch, a bed. And like the, the double, which is a six foot by four foot by two foot thing, only $400. I mean, not dirt cheap or whatever, but not bad. I think for a beanbag chair or whatever. And this looked fairly durable. It's a cotton lycra kind of a cover or whatever that's machine washable. Um, this stuff looked like it was it was meant for some serious punishment. Nice. 
And it was cool to see this sort of a thing on a con floor because, yeah, here's a, a shot of the guy sitting in the... Nice, yeah. Um, it, It's cool to have this on the con floor because there are a lot of times where it's like, damn it, I just want somewhere to sit. Yes. This was a popular booth. Oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah. Um, trying to think which other booths I spent a, a fair amount of time at. Went to the Valiant booth, talked to the guys there. Again, great company. Uh, Image had a booth there. Marvel. Graffiti had one. Um, Comixology was sponsoring Artist Sally, which I found fascinating. Yeah. I thought that was a smart move. I think DeviantArt doing it in San Diego was also a really smart move. I think that's a good synergy for, for both of those companies. Um, and I think sponsoring an artist alley, uh, is a cool thing for them to do, particularly if it subsidizes and makes it easier for the artist to get there. Yes. Yes. Cause in the long run, that benefits them. Yeah. Which is just cool. Yeah. Other place we went to, and I think got on their press list for was superhero stuff. Yes. I'm starting to get an understanding of it. Um, I was, I understand it better than I did when we were at the booth. I'll put it that way. There were two sides to the booth. One, the majority of it was just they're selling T-shirts, backpacks, that kind of stuff. And then along the the one edge of it is it's a subscription box service. Mm -hmm. See, and that was my misunderstanding. I thought it was identical loot crate, I guess is what I want to say. And it was just a mystery box a month uh, for $50, which to me blew my mind. Yeah. Um, but I went and I checked out the website since then and looked at it and stuff. And what really intrigues me, because they had, you know, samples up on the wall. And I was trying to figure this out. I'm like, okay, you get a t-shirt every month. That's cool. You get a keychain every month. Do I need 12 keychains? You get a zipper cup every month. Okay, now I'm getting confused. Do I need? Um, but they have, it's, it doesn't actually really feel like a subscription per se. Because they have 10 boxes, from what I can tell. Nine are sort of established, always available, and one seems to be a rotating box of the month. So they always have Batman available. They ah. always have Flash available. And I've forgotten what the others are. So for those, do you know what's in that box and say, okay, for 50 bucks I get all this? For 50 bucks, you seem to get... A t-shirt, a keychain, a, there's, you get a $70 value and these are the types of things you get, but it doesn't seem to be these guaranteed items. Okay. Like Loot Crate. Because they had a display that had a couple of boxes. It's like that, uh, the, the t-shirts alone I, I thought were cool. Exactly. exactly. The rest of it didn't seem, in my mind, to add up to 70 bucks. Not even the 50, at least of what I would perceive value in. Well, and that's the thing. What I would perceive value in is exactly how I would phrase it. But the other thing is, I don't need 12 different aluminum mugs a year. No. 12 With different t-shirts a year. All the ones I saw, the Shazam one was cool, stuff like that. But then, you know, for the price they're charging, for what I would get, I'm better off just buying the shirts I want. Yeah. And see, that's why when I thought it was a subscription where every single month you're going to get another keychain, another sippy cup, another, you know, that's when I got confused. But when I realized it doesn't seem to be a subscription, but pick and choose. Interesting. Do you want this month's box? Do you want one of our established boxes? I think I need to check out their website then because that was not the impression I got at the booth. Exactly. 
I thought it was another loot crate sort of a thing. Exactly. And along those lines, Wizard has has started up a Comic-Con in a box. And I was a very bad influence. We heard about a box while we were there from a friend, and I happened to see it on Facebook, and so I sent you a link to, I forget the correct name of Marvel in a box. The Marvel one I've signed up for, too. Yeah, like I said, I was a very bad influence when I sent you that link. but And I do have the Loot Crate one to go through. Yes. Um, and we'll get to that when we get to that. So, yeah. But that's one of the things. It, it, going to these conventions, it's cool seeing the different shirts and the toys and all mm, that stuff. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you can now subscribe to them in a box and have it sent, kind of interesting, too. Um, it's funny, though, because... Well, and I actually want to go back to your Wizard World comment for one moment. Wizard World sold out of their first yes. box. So, to me, that's impressive. And that one should be coming any time now. Yeah. Now, I have no idea what quantity they prepared to make for their first box. But the fact that they met what they thought was the upper limit yeah. of what they would do, that's that's impressive. Yeah, I think so. And I'm curious how much they're going to be pushing that at their conventions over the course of the year. Mm-hmm. And what we like of those. Yes. Because, I mean, with Loot Crate... We did an episode on that. You know, we'll determine over the course of the year, do I stick with that or not? And odds are, I probably won't. I don't need more stuff. I've got lots of stuff. And was it the Marvel one that did not require a subscription, but on the anniversary, if you've stayed with them for the year, gives you a gift? Marvel does it on a quarterly basis. So do three, you get a special thing. Okay. So I had signed up for one, upgraded to the three month for that. And then I forget what I did for the other one. I'd have to go look. Mm-hmm. But, but there, yeah, there was at least one that we were looking at where it it doesn't require you to do annual intervals. It doesn't require you to be a subscription. However, if you are consistently and contiguously by the years, then at your anniversaries, you get like a special anniversary statue. Well, in Loot Crate, I could have done on a month-to-month basis or whatever. Mm-hmm. But by signing up for the year, I got a cheaper price and the shirt. But at the second year anniversary, do you get special for being two years gift? Probably not. See, that's what I'm curious about. Fair point. Those are, are curated boxes, much as a convention is a curated shop mm. with individual samplings and stuff. Yeah. It's it's not a one-to-one comparison, but it, to me, it's interesting how there's a, this is the stuff we think you would be interested in kind of aspect. With a convention, it's just who can they get to show up versus, I think, a little bit more reaching out from the people who put the boxes together. Mm-hmm. But what I find interesting is how this is becoming a, a bigger thing uh, with the, the the boxes in the geek space, yet there's also a trend towards, and I don't know if it held true at, at C2E2 or not, but we were hearing a lot last year, people are going to conventions, but they're not spending money. I found myself making a mental note about the Star Labs shirt, for instance. Um, part of that was suitcase space. Yes. Uh, part of that was budget of the moment. I happen to have more on my credit card at this precise moment than normal. Mm-hmm. And I know three months from now, I'll have less on my credit card than normal. So if Star Labs shirts are still available three months from now, yeah, they'll get it from me. I easily could have picked up a couple of, of Doctor Who Sonic screwdrivers, but again, 
how much is on my credit card, where do, I can de- delay certain purchases. Yeah. Yeah. So now the flip side, going back to your T-shirts comment from quite a while ago, uh, the shirt I wore that got quite a bit of comment was the Sin Seriously shirt mm-hmm. of Stephen Amell's. And it was funny because I got comments from just several fans, some who were wearing it. And it was, hey, you know, nice shirt. I'm wearing it too. Uh, one was hilarious. Uh, I love going to the book publishers, uh, Del Rey, Random House, etc., and just seeing what novels are being given out and getting hooked on new authors and authors I haven't read before. At one of the booths, one of the guys, as he handed me a book to read, he said, by the way, step about four feet over and stop and let her see your shirt. Thank you. So I stepped over and his coworker looks up and goes, oh, my God, I so nearly wore that shirt today. <laughs> I'm like, ah, OK, that's what just happened. What I want to know about the book publishers is how is their business model or whatever so different from comics that they can afford to be giving away books? Mm. I think there are a few things going on. Um, they frequently are giving out advanced reader copies. In order to get reviews, I was reading something just today, in fact, that was saying Amazon.com is pulling back on what books they promote. And if your book has less than 100 reviews, they won't promote it. Mm. So from a book publisher's point of view, if giving out all these advanced review copies means people will go to Amazon.com and you'll get those 100 reviews. That makes sense. Okay. You're essentially seeding the well for the reviews. Yeah. Okay, so I see it from that perspective. There's also the fact, as somebody was pointing out to me, oh, Terry Brooks' publisher was one of the ones there. Is that... uh, Del Rey, Random House? No. Might be Random... I forget. Um, But I saw his Shannara book was out, and it was one of the very early ones, as I recall, because I'm like, hey, wait, I've had that one for quite a while. It's not a very recent one. And I thought, ah, okay, that's what they're doing. They're not giving out the most recent book. Ah, let's give the first book in the series something we've got sitting around for a while. Mm -hmm. It may get them onto the series and we've got another X books afterwards. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Yeah, let's get them hooked with that early book, which may actually be harder to find in the stores when you think about it. Because especially if you're shopping at somewhere like Walmart that only keeps the most recent on the shelves, you know. Well, also, the difference between the books and the comics is comics are a serial mm. medium. Books, you get a full story. Yeah. Even if it's part one of a, a series. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I will admit that uh, two of the publishers were handing out samplers, and I've gotten to where I won't pick those up anymore. I used to, and like you were saying with Mark Wade, he must have photographic memory. I do not. I do, however, have a good enough memory. That if I read a sampler and the book comes out six oh. months later and I pick up the book and I'm reading the back cover, I'm like, no, I think I've read this story. Well, I've only read the sampler, but so much of it is familiar from that back cover or from reading the front page to see if I've read it that I'm better off not reading the sampler. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. Along those lines, ages ago, decade or so back, there was the expo before San Diego Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. Trade expo, insider stuff, uh, which we could get to because mm-hmm. I was connected to some stores and whatnot. And they had uh, Xerox copy previews 
mm-hmm. of comics, mainly. I mean, I'm a hardcore DC fan. So for the day or two of the convention, I would pretty much hang out at the DC booth. And they even had some of this during the convention itself, just for display or whatever. But for the, the, the expo, it's like, here's a stack, go take them with you, you know, kind mm-hmm. of thing. You come out with reams of paper of, here's black and white versions of what's going to be in the comics for the next three months. Mm-hmm. So I was sitting there reading the stuff, and for the next three months, it's like, yes, I've seen this. I, I know what's coming, you know. Yeah. It feels like it's, old news. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, part of what really got in the uh, the no spoilers thing to me. Mm-hmm. It's like, I want to see the full story, full color, full shebang. Mm-hmm. I don't need to short circuit the process. Yeah, I was really disappointed in the past two days. I was sent a review copy of a book on email two days ago. And yesterday, I received an email, as did all the other reviewers, from the author saying that uh, yesterday morning, they found out that review copy was already up on Torrance. Oh. And they don't know which of the 200 reviewers leaked it prior to it even going up for sale on Amazon. But that that's just so tragic to me that, that that's happening. Buddy Scalera made a comment in one of, not a comment, a rant, and a well-deserved one, I think, in, I guess, the second of the social media ones I went to, basically saying how he had done a couple of books of photo reference for comic artists, mm-hmm. and how he will never do another one ever again. They'd been pirated. Yeah. You spend all this time, all this effort doing this, and then it's just given away. And again, that kind of a thing where somebody takes something that's up for review copy, mm. and potentially undercuts the complete sales curve of that thing. Yeah. That's that's part of why when I set up the the podcast, particularly the weekly comic spotlight, I'm reviewing stuff after it's out. Mm. And my episodes go up almost two weeks after the thing's out. I'm trying to review a comic, not preview it, not undercut its sales, not anything of the sort. Yeah. Hopefully if somebody likes it they can still find it. Yeah. Or get it digitally now through Comixology or wherever, or get it in trade, whatever. Hopefully it's sparking sales, but not undercutting mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's something I, I, I look at these conventions. Again, C2E2 is a great example. It's a professional, well-run mm. show. Mm-hmm. I didn't notice any real snags in the ointment at all. Uh, the, the worst thing I can think of, we get there the first day, we come up through one entrance, get up to the top, we've got our badge. Oh, wait, we've got to go down through another stairs off mm. to the other side to go get the lanyard to get in. Okay. Inconvenient, but not a big deal. There were two amusing things to me about that. First of all, because we had press badges, we go to the press counter. We had one person with us who did not have a press badge, and she was trying to figure out where to go. And we said, just come with us. We get to the press counter and we show them our badges. We're like, she doesn't have a press badge, but we don't know where to tell her to go. She's with us. Could we, by any chance, are the lanyards the same? He looks at her and says, you have good friends. Don't get lost. Stay with them. Here's your lanyard. Yeah. We're like, thank you. You're awesome. And that was just a inconvenient because of where we had parked, but not yeah. bad. Well, but what cracked me up was when we got back upstairs... By the time we got up there, they had realized that was going on, had resolved the problem, and were handing out lanyards 10 feet away from really? where we'd come in. Yes. I hadn't noticed that. So 
They found and fixed the problem smoothly. Linda and I saw that and we were busting up because we're like, seriously, we just walked all that way. And if we'd waited 20 minutes and done nothing, the problem would have just poof, would magic have come wanded. To us. The solution would have come to us. Yes. But I mean, you got a show like this that's that's good size. Yeah. Uh, incredible artist alley. Well run, well organized. And it's near as I can tell, just smooth and happy all the way around. Well, and... In the autograph area, and I debated whether or not I was going to mention this because I know how, so I'll put it in this section. Um, we were at the very beginning of the line for Orphan Black. Mm -hmm. So the way they lined us up was a very odd zigzag instead of a front to back. So we were five people wide, left to right, and then right to left, and then left to right, if you will, snaking back that and is forth. Weird. Yeah. And it's different than how we had been before we were moved over to there. Adult Swim had apparently been signing right before Orphan Black. And we saw them finishing their signing and then leaving. They asked what we were lined up for as they were getting ready to leave, as they were signing their last autographs. And we saw they were doodling on that white plasticky Oh, on the tabletop. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We weren't paying much attention to the fact they were doodling that, that they were Adult Swim I do my ditzy blonde thing really well. I probably shouldn't have been doing it quite that well, or I might understand why when the C2E2 people came over to set up for Orphan Black, they looked at that white tablecloth, they got black sharpie, they started scribbling over whatever the Adult Swim people had been doodling. They took that table out of the autograph area they broke that table down. They flipped it upside down and placed it on top of another table. Mind you, they think we couldn't see this through the black curtains. So I am apparently oblivious to this. They put a bunch of bags on top of that table that is now resting upside down on top of another table. So it couldn't be gotten at or moved. And then they brought a different table out for the orphan black people to sign at. What did that poor table do? I don't know. We were trying to figure it out. It really makes me wonder what they had scribbled down on the... We we want to know what the poor table did. I... But the flip side to that is they were clearly being very conscientious and very protective about something. Well, they either felt somebody would have been offended, it wasn't appropriate, or... Exactly. Something. Yeah. You know, they, they were being very respectful and appropriate about something, is my take on it. Well... Again, they had huge signs up about cosplays not consent throughout the thing. Yeah. Slideshows going on at every panel room of, we do not tolerate, you know, bad behavior around mm -hmm. this, this, that, and the other type yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know, don't give anyone crap because of, you know, how they're cosplaying or what their gender is or anything of the sort. You know, it's, they, there was a very, very strong anti-bullying yeah. campaign going on there. Yeah. Both as a series of panels, there was a booth there. And they I was, were behind that full swing. I was talking to uh, the actor Owen Mackin, and Chase Masterson walked mm -hmm. up to him and said, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I want to talk to you. And I glanced at what she had in her hands and said, and I happen to know it's something very important, so I'm going to excuse myself while you two have a conversation. And I left because Chase has been doing a wonderful thing, gathering people in an anti-bullying campaign. Yes. 
and getting anti-bullying plot lines into television shows. And she's gotten, you know, the United Nations and Girl Scouts of America and just all of these organizations pulled together in this anti-bullying campaign. And the fact that she, when she is on these autograph alleys, just goes down booth by booth and says, I'm Chase Masterson and I stand against bullying. Will you stand with me? I think it's awesome. I'm curious what ignited that passion in her. Oh, I'm, I'm confident I know. Okay. Think back to Dragon Con when we met her mm-hmm. and she'd had an identity theft problem mm-hmm. and someone had not only stolen her identity online, but was threatening her and her son. And she'd had to move out of her apartment for her own safety and her son's. I remember the identity theft. I hadn't remembered the other part. And that's just... As far as I'm concerned, that is a form of bullying against an adult. Oh, absolutely. And I know there are cases of that sort of thing that go on. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was definitely noticing how a lot of the anti-bullying stuff at C2E2 was geared towards kids mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And that's where it starts and that's where it's got to stop. Exactly. Exactly. But, but as far as from my perspective, and, you know, admittedly, I'm coming at it from a female perspective, but I think if you've been through something like that, you want to stop it at the child level. You want to make sure kids aren't doing it, that they get in their heads it's entirely wrong that it doesn't reach adulthood and that no one goes through what she went through as as horrific as bullying at a kid level can be for it to happen at an adult level Mm -hmm. and -hmm. again i i know that it does yeah blows my mind the story she told during a panel at dragon con was just so was that the Electronic Frontier Foundation one was talking? Because I think I went to that one. It's just been- you went to it with me, and afterwards, you and I pulled Chase aside and took her to speak to Peter David yeah. about the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. That's what it was. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that she's gone through that sucks. The fact mm-hmm. that she's got this passion, the fact that she's done so much with it, mm-hmm. it's well, where it's not just, hey, there's a thing on bullying. It's This was, again... Yeah. Between last year and this year, C2E2. Yes. I noticed a big difference in how they cosplay is not consent, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Well, and as much as I was jesting earlier about with the Power Ranger, cosplay is not mm-hmm. consent. And Linda had thanked me for not making that comment when the three-year-old, you know, but the father was teaching the three-year-old, he's not an action figure. We don't touch the cosplayer's belt. And we treat them with respect. They're people too. Yes. 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 And the cosplayer was being very patient and very tolerant with the three-year-old as he's trying to figure out how do I not touch the three-year-old as I kind of nudge him away. Yeah. Because he's at my belt and I don't know what he's going to touch next. Well, it's one of those things that, yeah, when you've got kids and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. it's bad situations can happen just awkward situations exactly and, and that was awkward exactly and that's you, that you can't push the kid away the parent could flip out as they should you know whatever yeah. it's yeah and everybody in that situation dealt with it well well and the fact that that c2e2 seems to be kind of hyper aware of this mm-hmm. and seems to be going out of their way to make sure everybody has a good time and mm-hmm. nobody's doing it at somebody else's expense mm-hmm. i really respect that 
Yeah. And I mean, we've been to, to conventions all over the place. I mean, not all the conventions, certainly not, but I mean, we've been going to San Diego for decades. We've been to Megacon, Dragon Con, uh, the Fan Expo. We've been to, uh, the one up in Dallas, uh, the small one there, the, uh, about 10 years ago. Sci Fi Expo. Sci Fi Expo. That's the one I was thinking. In Plano. Um, so, I mean, we've, we've been to a couple, uh, quite a few over the years, uh, different Wizard World ones, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And there's usually, ah, uh, there's a place they could improve whatever. And I'm not suggesting that C2E2 is perfect, but I'm going to say that I, I really didn't leave there thinking, wow, well, you know, they, they came up short in this area or that. They didn't. Mm-mm. They, they ran a professional show. I was amazed how light of a touch they seem to have. Mm-hmm. San Diego, you always see the, <laughs> the security people mm. and there's a, a visible presence. Well, and the people working in the convention are just so nice. When you ask them a question, when you say, I need help with something, if they don't know the answer, they stop and they say, let me find out. Please, just give me a moment. I seem to feel they had a better hit ratio for answering questions, a more coherent know how to get the answer if they didn't know. Whereas how many times in San Diego, which is just, again, the mammoth convention. Now, mm. I haven't been to New York. I haven't been to some mm-hmm. other huge ones. And it could just be that it comes a size where you're going to have this problem. But where it's, well, we're sending people down this way. They're sending you back this way. Kind of cross purposes. We hit this in uh, Fan Expo. Yeah. Yeah. Getting sent up the stairs to go down the stairs to go back up the stairs. It's like, I just want to go somewhere. Yeah. Well, and the problem I had in the case of the stairs and Fan Expo is, you know, I take heart meds. Yeah. I look young, I look healthy. They don't they don't anticipate I take heart meds and they don't look at me and say, Hey, here's a cardiologist patient who may need that elevator. Yeah. They just funnel me at those stairs and say, Why aren't you huffing it? Well, the, again, the bit with the stairs. Comic fans I don't think are known for their uh uh marathon endurance and, and you know, triathlon physique. Um, I'm certainly not. I don't know. The there were a few cosplayers who uh anyway. Oh, that was one of the funnier stories to come out of the Marvel booth. Apparently someone was dressed as Wolverine without a shirt, and during the giveaway hour he won a shirt on condition that he with his uh claws claws extended put the shirt on in front of everyone. <laughs> See how well that works. I thought that just had to be quite the demonstration. Yeah. I kept wondering, hmm, how did that shirt survive? Marvel had a good-sized booth. They had a stage. They had, again, places for the giveaways, a lot of good banners, uh, posters of the different uh, upcoming Secret Wars stuff. I gather they had one person who was having so much fun signing, he wanted to keep signing during giveaway hour. Yeah, apparently Dan Slot's a, a serial signer. Yeah. Just get him started, he won't stop, which... I think is awesome. He's also a great writer. See, I I think that's a great thing about conventions. When the people doing the signing are having as much fun as the people getting the signing. Well, there's the sense that they want to kind of give back. Yeah. That, you know, we're allowing them to indulge in, in you know, one of the things they really love and they appreciate that. Mm-hmm. They don't take that for granted. I've definitely gotten that impression, again, from people like Mark Wade. Um, again, I love talking with people like uh, Tom Zoller, 
uh, Adam and, and Comfort, Mike Norton, Steve Bryant. There are a lot of people that I've gotten to know in the industry and stuff that they're just having a good time doing what they're doing, it seems like. And they do good work. So it's a win-win for everybody. Well, and at C2E2, not just on Sunday, which is traditionally kids' day, but every day at the convention, I felt like I saw a lot of kids enjoying the convention and in the cosplay Mm -hmm. and just actively participating, which I really enjoyed and thought was wonderful. There did seem to be almost a cross-generational aspect on some of this. People bringing their kids and and not just dragging them along, but they're getting into the stuff. Yeah. Uh, Sharing the love. I think the movies help with that. Yeah. But that's also part of why uh, I'm making a little bit more of a point to wear like a Power Ranger shirt at some of these things. It's there are more superheroes out there than just the Superman, the X-Men, the, you know, the, the Marvel DC flock of characters. There's stuff that has originated in TV that can and should go to comics. Yeah, Paper Cuts has, has Power Rangers, but I'm talking more monthly comic type mm-hmm. stuff I think would work and, and vice versa. There's enough cool things to go around through the different mediums and there's a large fan base out there that comics should be selling better. TV shows should be leveraging more of the properties and they, they certainly this season are. Mm-hmm. It's it's really, it's a great time to be a fan and it's a great time to, to be going to these kinds of shows because were I of a mind to, i.e. not traveling on carry-ons, um, I easily could have spent quite a bit of money being on Doctor Who stuff or mm. t-shirts or whatever. Um, granted, I've got a lot of stuff. I don't necessarily need more stuff, although I'm acquiring more stuff. Mm. But yeah. if there's something you want, it's it's there to be had or people can at least point you in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I will say getting sick for a good mm-hmm. couple of days. I mean, I was down for like Four days. Oh, I totally was unaware two days happened last week. That's how out of it I was from the con crowd. So I recommend if you're going to go to a convention, have a strong immune system upon arrival. Well, and don't start tired, which we did, which sucked. Yeah. But was unavoidable. Um, Get your rest. Keep your your strength up. That kind of stuff. Take care of yourself. Yeah. Um. That whole experience, though, has gotten me thinking, yes, how badly do I want to go to conventions? But it's fun. It is. And, you know, enjoying it with friends really enriches the experience. Again, had great conversations with a number of people. Uh, You know, Mike Norton is somebody I could hang with a lot just because I've had some opportunities to really talk with the guy. He's a fan. He's, He's fun to talk with. Great guy. Amazing artist, you know. And... Being able to hang out with some of these people, see what they're doing, how their careers are going. I love that. I and mean, it was yeah. so cool going up to him. One of the things he commented on was the badges. Uh, and one of the ones I had was uh, from uh, The Wicked and the Divine. And it's like, you know, he, he commented that he knew, I think, every artist whose art was on the badge. Mm. And I'm like, that's cool. Yeah. You yeah. know, because I remember when he was just. I don't say just coming up or whatever, because he was already in the industry by the time I knew him. But just seeing how his career has progressed, there's a part of me that that really takes, I don't say a certain amount of pride or ownership or anything of the sort of it. I enjoy seeing people I like be successful. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And again, being at Steve Bryant's booth when people are just literally coming up and handing him money. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. And again, seeing just a lot of these other people Mm-hmm. Uh, be successful, have a good time, 
B appreciated, C characters they've worked on have come to life, that kind of stuff. Um, it, it really shows what a unique industry comics are and are turning TV and movies into. Mm-hmm. Again, David Ramsey talking to the fans and stuff like that. Do you really see that on, on your typical, would he have done that for Blue Bloods? Yeah. It's yeah, not that I'm, kind of a show. It's not that kind of a fan base. I was going to say, I definitely watch Blue Bloods every single week, but didn't think to mention it. How many, how many, had he been just doing Blue Bloods versus Arrow, how many people, how many of those fans do you think he would have ever met? Mm, yeah. That's my point. Yeah. There's agreed. something about this fan base of comics, of video games, of TV shows that is coalescing and becoming a much more interactive and uh, cohesive is not the right word, but um, coherent mm-hmm. fan base. Mm-hmm. That's what's allowing things to get on Kickstarter and get funded mm-hmm. to 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 have the interaction and for us to influence the people creating the stuff to get what we want and get what we want. You know, it's there's a synergy there that's a lot of fun to watch happen. Yeah, particularly now when uh, comic sales may not be brilliant, but man, the amount of comic properties. Mm being so successfully turned into TV shows and movies um, and seeing that celebrated by people in costumes, reading the books or watching the movies, whatever. It's just a lot of fun. Now, I'm going to propose that we're basically done, but ask that if anyone listening has ideas, put them out there either on the forum or on Twitter. Jewel State is interested in being on the show Arrow. Actually, what she said when somebody asked, what superhero do you want to play? She'd say, any of them. Yes. Well, that's true. Uh, to which um, David Ramsey was, was, she was saying she'd like to be on Arrow. David Ramsey's like, okay, hashtag Jewel State for Arrow. Yes. I mean, she could play a friend of Felicity. She could do whatever. She's an awesome actress. Be fun to have guest star on the show. Yes. Uh, totally. Totally. Yes. And with that, I think we are pretty much done. I think we are. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.